0: What truly matters is teachers' expertise.
1: The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries.
0: 44% of jobs will be automated.
1: It reinforces cycles of disadvantage.
0: Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 23 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woi and Boon people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the podcast. In today's episode, we're speaking to Dylan William. Dylan is an absolute legend in the world of education and has always had an acute focus on teacher professional development and especially formative assessment. He consults with governments and school systems around the world in order to improve learning outcomes for students. Documentaries have been made that highlight his work with schools and he has authored a whole host of excellent books. His book, Embedded Formative Assessment, is a fantastic resource for teachers. Embedding Formative Assessment is a wonderful book for department heads. Leadership for Teacher Learning, the book that we discussed in this interview, is excellent reading, especially for school leaders. And finally, his book, Creating the Schools Our Children Need, is necessary reading for anyone looking at educational change at a systems level. For a long time, I've cited Daniel Willingham's book, Why Don't Students Like School, as my favorite education book, and the book that's had the biggest impact on me as an educator. But after reading Leadership for Teacher Learning, I'd have to say, now I have two favorite books. I can't emphasize strongly enough the wisdom contained in Dylan's writing, and I'm extraordinarily excited that you're about to hear much of this wisdom shared over the next two and a half hours. In this episode, we discuss why Dylan felt that Leadership for Teacher Learning was a necessary book to write. We get Dylan's take on the current state of education research, with a particular focus upon the process of meta analysis and meta meta analysis. We then move on to an exploration of what makes a good teacher and why it's so difficult to identify one. We also have a deep dive into the idea of formative assessment and, more specifically, how a school can embed formative assessment into their classroom culture to the end of improving student learning. You are absolutely going to love this podcast. Now, before we jump to the ERRR, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insightful, interesting and actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter blogs and various other sources in the week just past. It comes out at 3.30 on a Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. And last week's email included articles on how to use writing in class to build students' conceptual knowledge, whiteboarding in class and the idea of the mistakes game, a guide as to what to do if your child's school isn't teaching reading correctly, and much, much more. If you'd like to sign up to the weekly email, just jump onto com and you should see the sign-up form in no time. Additionally, I'm excited to say that next episode will be the two-year anniversary of the Education Research Reading Room podcast. As such, I thought it would be a good time to thank you for listening thus far, and to also ask you to consider making a donation to ensure the ongoing sustainability of the show. Putting together the podcast takes a considerable amount of both time and money to the extent that for the past two years, I've worked a four-day instead of a five-day week, in part to ensure that I'm able to continue to bring the podcast to listeners. So if you've been enjoying the ERR podcast and you know it's a worthwhile professional development resource for you, I'd love for you to go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up to make a monthly donation to the show. If 30 or so listeners were willing to make a donation equivalent to the cost of a cup of coffee per month, that would make the show cost-neutral and would be a much appreciated way to show your support. If I had about 40 patrons, that would go a good way to covering in the cost of the books that I often purchase in order to prepare for the show. And if I had 50 patrons, I'd be able to pay myself about 4 cents per hour for the prep time. <laughs> it would be wonderful if you could go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to help keep the show sustainable. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 23 of the Education Research Reading Room with Dylan William. Dylan William, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room.
2: Hi, good to be here.
0: The first question we always ask guests when they come on is, Dylan, if you're at a party and someone says, hi Dylan, what is it that you do? What's your answer?
2: The elevator conversation is, I help teachers, schools, and administrators improve education systems.
0: Nice and concise. And could you give us just a brief history of your career to date?
2: Yeah. I mean, I was a kind of moderately successful school student. I did pretty well in maths. I went to university to study mathematics, really wanted to be a musician, played semi-professionally, left university with a a kind of modest degree, worked semi-professionally as a musician for two years started teaching to get equipment together for the band. And after two years, I realized I couldn't actually carry on doing both, it was just too draining. And I, to my horror, I discovered I was enjoying the teaching more than I was enjoying the music. <laughs> so I gave up the music and thought I'd better get some credentials, I thought i better atone for my various educational failures. So I did a, a second bachelor's degree part-time, and then I did a master's degree, and then a PhD. Then uh, taught for about eight years, had an argument with my principal and got offered a research fellowship the next day. So everybody thought I was taking a huge risk, giving up this very safe job as a maths teacher and going into a short-term research contract. And then just got kind of got promoted within the university and eventually ended up as assistant principal of a college. And then decided I was clearly on a trajectory to end up as a vice chancellor of a university. And I wasn't sure I wanted that. So I went to ETS, educational testing service, just to, just to either get research out of my blood or to discover that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. And it was the latter that prevailed. So I went back to the UK for four years as a as a pro vice chancellor and then decided I wasn't going to spend the last 10 years of my life sitting in committee meetings. So I decided to head out on my own. I quit my very safe job as an academic and headed out on private consultancy. And so the last 10 years, that's what I've been doing, helping school systems all over the world improve primarily through the use of formative assessment but only because that's where the evidence points me you know if the if the evidence changes then I'll change what I'm doing my passion is for helping young people learn more in schools
0: great and and there's a kind of a thread of taking risks at different steps within your career there, there as well which is really interesting i'm i'm just curious at the moment What does it look like when you generally work with a school? Are you working more with schools or more with districts or more with countries? And like what frequency of meetings do you have with them? Do you go on site? Things like that.
2: Well, I mean, partly because I'm now a self financing academic, my fees are too high to sustain me working intensively with individual teachers. So what I've tried to do over the last few years is to produce a series of tools that we can put in people's hands where they don't need me, they can just get on with it. So that's the idea behind the various professional development products, various books that I've been producing. The fact that I've produced so many webinars and podcasts and just given them away, the idea is to put tools in people's hands so they can actually do this for themselves. Um, partly because, you know, it's great fun going to schools and talking with children, but it's just not scalable. Mm. You know, I, I'm looking at something that can improve, I don't know, you know 70,000 classrooms in South Australia, two million classrooms in America. You know, if, if, if you're not scaling, then you're basically more interested in the research than changing people's lives, I would say. Mm.
0: So which, uh, you, you said you're working with South Australia at the moment? Yeah, yeah. What are you, if I, if I can ask, what are you working on with South Australia?
2: Well, South Australia was, I think, one of the first to pick up the power
0: of formative assessment. So a few years ago,
2: we worked intensively with them, mostly with their primary schools. They acquired the professional development resources that my partner, Shibon Leahy and I had produced. And more recently, they've begun to understand that this is really something that isn't just for primary schools, it's for all schools. So they're really, I mean, they may tell a different story, but the, the DCD in South Australia really seemed to me to be putting classroom formative assessment at the heart of their professional development efforts to improve education in South Australia. And more recently, New South Wales has really picked up on this as well. So I've had several conversations with the Secretary of Education in New South Wales, People are beginning to see the power of this, I think Australia is probably in the in the vanguard here. I think the, the reception to my work is probably more positive in, South, in 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 the whole of Australia than it is anywhere else. And I think that's just because Australian teachers are a little bit further down the road.
0: That's great to hear, and hopefully this this podcast can help out with that as well. So the the book that we're discussing at today that we're focusing on is is the book you wrote recently, which is entitled Leadership for Teacher Learning. So. Just as a starting point, why did you want to write, write this book and what purpose did you think it would achieve?
2: Well, I think the, the starting point was point, first of all, in the research studies that Paul Black and I did back in the 1990s and early 2000s, we'd shown that when we worked face-to-face with teachers and helped them develop their practice of classroom formative assessment, their students learn more. So we knew that when teachers do this, students do better. The challenge, of course, is how do you scale? So then we worked with these things called teacher learning communities. That work was developed in America primarily with the educational testing service. And what we discovered was this was a scalable model. We we could actually ship some resources to a school district and just say, here's the box, just work through it at your own pace. And we discovered that when people did that, students learned more. So we thought we'd cracked it. But then, of course, I discovered that The real problem was, all we needed was teachers being given 75 minutes once a month, but we couldn't get school leaders to give teachers 75 minutes once a month to work on improvement. So if you think about it, the the leadership book is really helping leaders understand why their priority is teacher learning. If you're a school leader, if you're a principal of a school, your number one priority is actually creating a learning environment for the teachers that you lead. And that was the primary drive for it. That's where the title comes from. And of course, then I thought I'd cracked it, and I realized, of course, what was happening then was the politicians and the other people weren't giving the leaders the backing they needed, hence the most recent book is "Created the Schools Our Children Need, which is intended as a kind of mass market book to help people see the power of formative assessment as as a key lever for change, and they need to get behind their leaders, the leaders need to get behind the teachers so the teachers can develop their practice.
0: That's really interesting. And I guess if we look at the books that you've written over time, they kind of step up the level. So you start with things like yeah. embedded formative assessment for teachers. And then you, you I assume when you thought about scaling, you thought, well, this isn't going to cut it. So you started working up and up and you've just written, creating the schools that children need. So it's really interesting to have that context.
2: Well, of course, the, the other thing is, is as an academic, I, I'm relatively late to this game because for the first 20 years of my academic career, I didn't write any books because for an academic, writing a book, in, certainly in education, is an admission you've kind of given up. You know, basically, the kudos the is in the published referee journal articles. And so, for, you know, for the first 20 years of my academic career, I was communicating to other researchers. I wasn't communicating to teachers.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a bizarre thing about the way the system's structured, I guess. But I'm glad you're writing books now. Chapter three, I wanted to touch on because right. the, the idea of learning from research, meta-analyses and things like that, it's very hot topic in education right now. You know, I had, I had uh, Adrian Simpson and John Hattie on a few, few months ago and that, that yeah. was, you know, very, very popular interviews. Within the book, you say, the standardized effect size is a huge improvement on previous ways of reporting the outcomes of educational experiments. I just wanted to know if you could tell us what effect sizes help us to do that we couldn't do before them?
2: Well, previous to effect sizes, which were invented by an education professor, by the way, Gene Glass, everybody assumes it came from medicine, but it wasn't, it was actually an education professor in Arizona, Gene Glass, who invented meta-analysis. Previously, what happened was that people would count the number of positive effect sizes one way and the negative effect sizes the other way, and just basically saying, well, the majority of the opinion seems to be with the positives, so therefore we say this is a good thing. But what that was missing out was that some of the positives were barely positive and some of the negatives were hugely negative. So often those kinds of approaches were giving a very unbalanced introduction to the research evidence, a synthesis of the research evidence.
0: Okay, you also, more broadly, like even before effect sizes, I recall in the book you talked a little bit about how we, we started with just hypothesis testing even before effect sizes yeah. existed. Is that true?
2: Yeah, So so basically you have to figure out a way of deciding whether a particular experimental result could have happened by chance or not. And for many years since the work of Fisher in the 1930s, basically, we adopted what's called null hypothesis significance testing. So what we do is we figure out how likely is it that this result would have been obtained without an effect. So if we've got a coin that we think may be biased, we toss it 10 times and it's seven heads and three tails. Can you conclude this bias? No, because that kind of result could easily happen with a completely fair coin. But if you toss it 70, 100 times and get 70 heads and 30 tails, we can actually quantify exactly the probability that that result would have occurred with a fair coin. We find it's very, very small. And therefore, we reject the null hypothesis that the coin is fair. And instead, we adopt the alternative hypothesis, which is simply that the coin is not fair. So basically, you've proved to a certain level of probability that the coin is not fair. That's all you've done. That's called null hypothesis significance testing. More recently, as I said, we moved towards wondering about how biased the coin is, rather than just, is this a biased coin or not? And so that seems to be much more powerful. So, you know, people always say in education, does this work? You know, Does homework improve student achievement? Well, a yes or no answer is not particularly interesting. What you need an indication of is how much does it improve student achievement, because almost every intervention has a time cost, an opportunity cost. And the only way you can make sense of whether this is a good thing to ask teachers to spend their time on is to have some trade-off between the improvement in students' achievement and how much it's going to cost you to get that improvement in student achievement. And that's why I think moving towards standardized effect sizes in education has been a hugely positive shift, as it has been in medicine and other areas of social science.
0: Fantastic. So that was the kind of the first part of chapter three, but then you, you went into quite a lot of detail about some of the challenges we face when trying to use effect yeah. sizes. So, so what are these major challenges uh, in your view?
2: Well, first of all, I want to say I'm going to try in this podcast to be very clear about whether things are my view or whether they are actually scientific truth. And so most of chapter three is about scientific truth. It's not a matter of opinion. It is just the way the world is. So the first thing is publication bias. It turns out that the published studies are a non-representative sample of all the studies that are carried out. People that vary in their estimates, but it seems to be about 12 times easier to get a scientific paper published if the result is significant than if it's non-significant. So the ones that actually get published overstate the benefits because it's the lucky experiments that get published, and estimates vary from about a 50% increase in effect sizes for published studies. Some people, you reckon that they're double. John Ioannidis, Stanford professor published an article called Why Most Published Search Findings Are False. Mm. You know, basically, you can document this. So that's the first thing, and that applies to all studies. Now, in, in meta-analysis, there's a technique called a funnel plot that allows you to check for the presence of publication bias, and you can control for that. But very few people doing meta-analysis in education use funnel plots. And more importantly, most of the meta-analyses that Hattie includes in his meta-meta-analysis don't include funnel plots. So there's no way to check for the presence of publication bias in those kinds of meta analyses. The second issue
0: Before we get into the second issue, I did find some of the stuff around the file understanding the file draw problem a little bit confusing when I was reading your book. Okay. I wanted to I wanted to know a little bit more about this idea of statistical power because you talked in the book about the impact of statistical power on publication bias. So could you give us a little bit of a roundup of that?
2: Okay, so the power of an experiment is simply the likelihood that the result will be significant, even if the effect you're looking for is real. So what you do is you say, okay, my, my prior assumption is that this experiment is going to produce a significant result if the effect is at least 0.3 standard deviations. So if kids getting this learn, make 0.3 standard deviations more progress than kids not getting it, then I can figure out how big an experiment I need to conduct for that result to be significant. That's really important for funders. So I used to be on the trustees of a charity giving out medical research charities at Guy's and King's Hospital Trust in London. And one study was looking at uh, schizophrenia in Afro-Caribbean men. And we actually figured out that even if we got every single Afro-Caribbean man in England to participate in the study, we still wouldn't produce a significant result because there weren't enough of them to, to make the experiment big enough to succeed, given the size of the effects we we're looking for. So power is a really important thing. When you ignore power, what happens is that you get a, a lot of publication bias. So the, the estimated power of most educational experiments is around 40%. So only 40% of experiments that actually research a, an effect that is real, in other words, what they're researching does actually improve student education, only 40% of those studies will actually produce a significant result. The other 60% end up in the file draw of the researcher because they they researched it and they got a positive effect, but it wasn't significant, so therefore it's much harder to get published. So the problem is that the file draw problem is a much bigger issue when statistical power is low, as it is in psychology, point 0.4, education, point 0.4, and neuroscience, point 0.2. Where the power of the experiments is high, then it's much less of an issue. And that's why it was interesting the Educational Endowment Foundation in, in England has actually made a policy of doing power calculations for every experiment they fund. They won't fund an experiment until there's an 80% chance that the effect, if it's as strong as people believe it to be, will produce a significant result.
0: Okay, that, that makes sense. I guess the thing that confused me a little bit about reading this was the idea that we can calculate statistical power because it's based upon an assumption that you know the probability of finding an effect on, on of a study that you have not yet carried out.
2: Yes, I can see what's confusing. But the you have to make an assumption about how big an effect you're researching. Okay. So typically you you say okay, I'm going to use a 5% criterion for rejecting something as being a, a, a fluke. So we used, so that's called the alpha level. Okay, so you make a decision about that. You could use point 0.1, you could use point 0.5, you can use any number you like, but point five, point zero 0.05 is the traditional accepted significance level in psychology. You then have to say how, how big an effect this is. In other words, how biased the coin is. If you believe the coin to be very slightly biased, you need a lot more coin tosses to prove it's biased than if you believe the coin is very, very biased. So these are all assumptions that you can actually derive from previous work. And by the way, this is actually the source of one of the biggest confusions in all of meta-analysis. So Jacob Cohen, in his guidance on designing meta-analyses, sorry, designing studies in the 1980s, said, if you don't know what effect size to use in your power calculation, he said, if you think it's a small effect, use a value of 0.2 or 0.3. If you think it's a medium effect, use a value of 0.4 to 0.6. If you think it's a large effect, use 0.7 or 0.8 or more. So for him, these small, medium, and large words were applied to effects that people already knew about, and he was trying to put numbers to those effects. Nowadays, people completely misapply his work by saying an effect size of 0.2 to 0.3 is small. Well, no, it's not. It depends on the context. So that's a source of real confusion. But you have to make an assumption about the effect you're looking for to decide how powerful your lens is going to be to detect it. So it's like saying, it's exactly like saying, if you want to look for a planet that is 6 million light years away and you think the planet is 3,000 miles across, I can tell you how big a telescope you need to be able to detect that planet if it's really there. So you have to make all those assumptions, but then it'll tell you how big a telescope you need to build.
0: Got it, got it. That's a great analogy and that helps to clarify it for me. Thanks for bearing with me through that, Dylan.
2: Well, I generally take about three hours to do this at a master's seminar, so <laughs> All right. So if you understand it, that's pretty impressive.
0: That's that's great. And I promise to listeners that's about as technical as this podcast is gonna get. So you can you can relax if that was a bit much. Also back to that Cohen. Cohen quote. I just wanted to pull out a yeah. quote from your book that I thought was quite quite good. A report that labels effect sizes as small, medium, or large, based solely on the magnitude of effect size, should be treated with deep scepticism and provides at least a prima facie case that the authors do not know what they are talking about.
2: Yeah. Well, basically, because they haven't read Cohen, they're accepting his advice without even understanding what he was saying. And the fact is that since Cohen's work, which is primarily focused on psychology, where effect sizes tend to be larger, and they don't really look very much at change, since then it's been shown that effect sizes matter hugely. It matters hugely whether the students are 10 years old or 5 years old or 15 years old. So the contextual effects on effect sizes are huge in education, and that's why a blanket prescription that an effect size of 0.2 to 0.3 should be called small is just a very silly thing to say. It just it's basically showing that you're statistically illiterate.
0: There you go. Okay. So so you've talked about the fire draw problem. You just talked about the age dependence of effect size. Well what are some of the other issues? Yeah.
2: Well perhaps the least understood, even by, by anybody, is this issue of sensitivity to instruction. So it's been well known for many years that teacher produced measures of achievement, produce larger effect sizes than researcher produced or standardized measures. And for a long time, it was believed that this was because teachers were not very good at producing measures of achievement. But it turns out to be this thing called sensitivity to instruction. So some tests measure pretty closely what it is the students are being taught, and some tests measure something that's only very weakly related to the direct instruction. So, in effect, you're thinking about transfer or things like that. But the important point is you have to have some measure of this because one study by Maria Ruiz Primo and Min Lee found that feedback interventions found an effect size of 0.2 when standardized tests were being used. But when teacher produced measures were being produced, you got an effect size of six times as much, 1.2. So, it turns out the effect size you get depends on how good the thing that you're using to measure student achievement how good it is at measuring student achievement. Mm. And to his credit, Bob Marzano pointed this out in 1995. So in his early work on meta-analysis, Marzano acknowledged the huge difference in effect sizes you got from different kinds of measures. And you have to understand that. And you can control for it by factoring that into your meta-analysis. So think, think to measure, remember meta-analysis, is the researchers, good meta-analysts, always use these things called moderators of effect. Do we get a different result if we look for the effect sizes for older children versus younger children? Do we get a different effect if we use teacher-produced measures of achievement versus standardized tests versus researcher-produced measures? So you can actually see whether these things are making a difference. And so it's a standard technique in good meta-analysis to look for moderators of effect. Do I get a bigger effect with this approach than that approach? And that tells you that those things matter. Uh, if, if you get the same effect size, no matter what kinds of way you break the study down, then you know you've got a pretty robust effect size across all the different populations where it's been studied.
0: Fantastic. And and this sensitivity to instruction is what Adrian Simpson ta- calls measurement design. And listeners can go back to that episode with him and, and listen to yeah. a, a humorous example where he talks about the word for education in Hungarian. But I'll leave that to listeners to follow up with. Finally, to round off this discussion about learning from research, Robert Coe in a recent recent article wrote the following to adapt churchill's famous quotation about democracy systematic review based on effect sizes is probably the worst possible way to summarize what we know about the impact of interventions apart from all the other ways that have been tried and he suggests that you know the approach that's taken currently by hattie and others is is better than nothing and it's it's the best we've currently got to what extent do you do you agree with this assertion
2: well hang on minute. that's not what hattie does
0: okay Hattie does not do meta-analyses.
2: Haddy does meta-analyses of meta-analyses. So, so let, let, let's put that to one side for a minute. I, I agree with everything Rob Coe says. He's obviously an extremely able professor, and that's of course because he was one of my students. <laughs> no, actually, I don't think I taught him anything. Actually, so you know, he's, he's absolutely right. It is by far the best approach we have. As I hope I'm careful to do in the chapter. I think I agree. With, I, I think I argue with it. This is the case. The point is. Many of the people doing meta-analyses in education don't avoid the avoidable problems like publication bias. You can avoid publication bias by simply doing a funnel plot, and you can actually impute missing values. So you can actually say what what would the effect size be if there weren't these publication bias problems. You can actually correct for that. There are other problems like sensitivity to instruction, where you can check to see what the effect where the effect is there, but it's quite hard to actually correct for. But my my argument is that people doing meta-analysis in education do not do these things. And therefore, the state of meta-analysis in education is relatively poor. And that's why I'm also arguing for things like best evidence synthesis. Let me give you one example. Class size reduction. Now, we can actually worry about all the meta-analyses of class size reduction, but here's a really important point. What most meta-analyses of class size reduction studies fail to do is correct for teacher quality. So they they try to actually see if if these teachers are given smaller classes, do their kids do better? And you make an effect. But if you try to introduce that at scale, like they have done in Florida, where the maximum class size is now mandated by the state constitution to be 22, what you'll do is create a situation in which rich districts poach good teachers from poorer school districts. And so what's happening is the extra teachers that are being recruited in the poorer school districts are worse than the teachers already present. So in fact, class size reduction can reduce student achievement if carried out in an area where teacher recruitment is difficult. And that's why I'm saying that meta-analysis by itself can never give you the answer. Educational leaders have to be critical consumers of educational research. And that's why I I use Bob Slavin's phrase of best evidence synthesis. And that's why I'm very critical of people who say, I've done the meta-analysis and here's the answer, here's what you should do. Because I'm sorry, but it's not that simple. And so for me, meta-analysis is part of the picture. But you also have to understand that the research that has been done are the research that have been done, not the ones that might be done. And with class size reduction, for example, often the ones that are done are the ones that just reduce class size without providing support to teachers for how they might use smaller classes to teach in a different way. Those studies are more expensive to conduct. There are fewer of them, and therefore, they get outnumbered by the much weaker, less powerful studies that are cheaper to conduct. So, so yes, meta analysis is important. But you can't assume that a meta-analysis is the final word on any topic because of these contextual factors that seem to make much more of a difference in education than they do, for example, in medicine.
0: Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is there's nothing wrong with the tool of meta-analysis based upon effect sizes. However, the way it's generally used at present is suboptimal and quite unreliable. Yeah. So who, who are some people who you think generally and consistently do a good job of applying the tool appropriately?
2: Well, I think most of the top journals now are actually doing it very effectively. So Hedges and others are people. Larry Hedges, there's a book that he's written with Borenstein and one other author whose name escapes me now. That's a really good guide to conducting meta-analyses. So basically, the state of the art is pretty impressive right now. We know all we know just about all the things that can go wrong with meta-analyses. Adrian Simpson's conversation, as you mentioned, has highlighted a number of other issues. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do meta-analyses. In fact, meta-analyses are important, but we have to understand why meta analysis might not give us the right, uh, the final answer. And we have to take a kind of contextual view about whether this particular meta analysis is one that we want to trust. And as I keep on pointing out, educational research only tells you what was, not what, what might have been. So, another example, and one I, I, I keep on complaining about, is the Educational Endowments Foundation conclusion that ability grouping lowers student achievement. Well, right now, it probably does. Most I think it's a fair reflection of the existing research studies. But in almost all the existing research studies, when students are grouped by ability, the best teachers are given to the highest achieving students. And it turns out that the highest achieving students don't need the best teachers as much as the lowest achieving students. So an experiment whereby you actually give the best teachers to the lowest achieving students might produce a very different result Of course, it would be political suicide because in most of the situations where this is a political issue, it's the middle-class parents who expect their kids to be taught by the best teachers who will complain when they find that actually the best teachers are going to the lowest-achieving kids, Mm. kids not like theirs. So the the, the problem is that you you can't trust the existing research to tell you what it is that's really going on here.
0: And just finally on on this point, you you made the clear distinction then between meta-analyses and meta-meta-analyses. Do you think anyone at present is uh, conducting meta-meta-analyses in a way that's reliable and and, and worth really looking at?
2: I don't think there is. I don't think it's possible. I think think the whole project is ultimately irredeemable because there's so much garbage that goes into the meta-analyses that unless you can actually... I mean, I think you have to look at each individual meta-analysis and take a view about whether appropriate moderators of effect like age, like publication bias, like sensitivity to instruction, have been factored in. If they haven't, then the results are basically meaningless. And so, you know, it's going to be garbage in, garbage out.
0: Okay, and we're at a point where there's really a lack of a critical mass of quality. Meta-analyses, therefore, doing a meta-meta is a bit null at this point in time. Is that what I'm hearing?
2: Well, it depends what you mean by critical mass. I mean, the trouble is that meta meta analysis often just aggregates studies of very different qualities. And it may be that we carry on producing garbage meta-analyses as well as good meta-analyses <laughs> in the future, so that it so that may not be ever possible for this thing to improve because you're always hoping that the good studies are predominant and you have no basis for that hope. That, 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 so in a way, the, the whole project of Leadership for Teacher Learning, I mean, one of the criticisms I saw from one uh, reviewer on Twitter was that it didn't have much about the actual role of leadership and the, you know, the emotional side of leadership, and it never intended to be that. It was intended to put in leaders' hands the knowledge that they needed to be effective leaders. I don't know much about the, the other side of it. You know, It's too contextual for me to actually venture any opinion. Mm. What I thought was important was the information in there that basically said, here's what the research says, here's what I think you need to know to make smart decisions about the leadership of your own organization, and how you do that, of course, is your personality, the context you're in, the political support you have, that's not something I'm going to get into. It's basically a knowledge book for the people who need to make decisions about how to lead their educational organizations.
0: All right, we might jump back to chapter two now, which is okay, which is teacher quality, why it matters, what it is, and how to get more of it. And, and at the start of that chapter, you kind of make the distinction between teacher quality versus teaching quality. So could you tell us a little bit about this distinction and why we should care about it?
2: A lot of people have criticized me for talking about teacher quality rather than teaching quality. The reason I go for teacher quality is because we can be pretty sure it's the same teacher in different classrooms. The trouble is we have no way of identifying or measuring teaching quality. The best observation schedules we have, like Charlotte Downson's framework for teaching, capture less than 30% of the variation in teacher quality. So obviously what matters to children is the quality of the instruction or the teaching they're getting. So if we could measure what good teaching looks like, then I'd be talking about teacher teaching quality. We don't. But as a proxy for that, what we now know is the same teacher carries around with them something in their head that when they move to a different school, teaching kids of different socioeconomic status, they're also more effective. And some people don't like this idea of teacher quality. And if you if you object to the idea of teacher quality, what you are claiming is that apart from random variation. Every teacher produces exactly the same learning in kids. And it's clearly a nonsensical position. What you're saying is that every teacher is as good as every other teacher if they have the same qualifications. And that's clearly nonsense. And just as a challenge, here's how I challenge it. Okay, so we're going to pick some teachers, right? And we know how good their kids were, how much progress their kids made last year. So we have the value-added scores for those teachers. Okay? Now, if you think the teacher quality doesn't matter, You don't care which teacher you choose in the following game. We each put in a dollar, and if the teacher I choose has kids making more progress, then you pay me. And if the teacher you choose makes more progress, then I pay you, right? Now, if you think teacher quality doesn't exist, you are happy to flip a coin about which teacher you get. I will choose the teacher who had the better value-added scores last year, and I will clean you out. I will. I will. Given long enough time, I'll clean you out. There's no question about that. The teachers who are good, you know, they could they're going to be slightly better. But if I get to choose which teacher on the basis of last year's evaluated scores, then I will win far more games than I lose, and eventually you'll run out of money.
0: Got it. I think. <laughs> I mean, I think that it could be argued that that was as a result of teaching quality rather than teacher quality. And and you know, I of course it
2: is. Of course, it is. teacher teacher. Some teachers are superior to others because they because the instruction they produce is more effective. But we don't know that. All we can say is that was the same teacher in those different classrooms. We don't know it's the same teaching because we can't measure teaching. So I'm very happy to acknowledge that teacher quality manifests itself in superior teaching quality. But since we can't measure teaching quality, teacher quality is the best proxy we have.
0: All right, let's, let's, let's talk briefly about the follies of trying to measure teaching quality here for a minute. And you went into quite a bit of detail with it about Craig Barton. I'm sorry,
2: I, I, don't, I don't think it's foolish. I'm not saying it's foolish. I'm just saying it's not, it, it's not possible to do well. All
0: right, let me rephrase. The challenges of measuring yeah. teaching quality. You talked about it in quite a bit of detail with Craig Barton, but the three approaches that are generally taken are value-added measures, observations, and student feedback. So, so what's, what's wrong or unreliable about these approaches?
2: Well, I mean the best data we have are from the Gates funded Measures of Effective Teaching Project and they found that I mean full observation are hugely flawed. It turns out that if you're teaching smart kids, you look about, you, you appear to be a better teacher. So if you if we use the Charlotte Gunnison framework for teaching and you're teaching maths in middle school, you are six times as likely to get a top rating on that scheme if you're teaching the top 20% of kids, than if you're teaching the, 20, the bottom 20% of kids. Teachers look better when they're teaching smart kids. Right now, nobody can dis- disentangle the impact of students and teachers on teaching quality. So, observations out. I mean, it's, it's just such a... I mean, people don't believe that, but, you know, most teachers are worse than chance at identifying above-average teachers. And I think I included that study in the book as well. So people find it hard to believe but of course it becomes much clearer why that's the case as soon as you think about Paul Kirshner, Richard Swellers, and uh, uh, John Swellers, and Richard Clark's definition of learning as a change in long-term memory. When you're observing teaching you're trying to figure out how much of what's going on in this classroom right now will these kids remember in six weeks time. It's hard and it's even harder because of Robert Bjork's work that shows That students remember more when they experience what he calls desirable difficulties. So, lessons that look really clear and lead the students through it by the nose, where everything seems step by step, are often less effective because students aren't having to struggle and to think as much. So, observations are a highly unreliable guide. Heather Hill's work at Harvard shows that to get even a reliable, let alone a valid rating of a teacher, just one that doesn't change from session to session, you'd need to have each teacher observed teaching five or six different classes, and have each one rated by five or six independent observers. You need 30 independent observations of a single teacher to get a reliable rating of how good that teacher is on your scheme. So that's why some people have given up on observation and say, let's do value-added instead. Let's test the kids at the beginning of the year, test the kids at the end of the year, see who makes most progress. And the reason that is impossible is because every teacher does things, every good teacher develops capacities in their students that are not captured in the scores those kids get at the end of that year, but are a foundation for what students will learn in future years. So every teacher builds on the foundations laid by her predecessors. And that's why value-added can never be done on an individual teacher level. It's more defensible at a school level, still has its problems, but I think it's just about okay at the school level. Um, it's just completely indefensible at the level of individual teachers.
0: I'm interested there because in your book, you referred to Aronson Barrow and Sander's work about measuring the stability of teacher quality over time. Yeah, Those studies were based upon value added and what you suggested mm-hmm. was from year to year, for example, um, of those in the top quartile, one year 10% are in the bottom quartile the next year and then it was like eight go for the bo- from the bottom to the top or something like that, 8%. So. You just talked about how it's unreliable at a single teacher level, but potentially reliable at a at a school level or or a larger level, group level. Yeah. What about, for example, McCaffrey's work, where if we look at at a single teacher over a period, a number of years, we can actually get much more reliable results.
2: Yep. Yep. And you know we can quantify this. So according to the Gates data for the Measures Effective Teacher Project, you can get a 0.9 reliable rating of a teacher's quality by collecting data over 11 years.
1: But, but we've got to account that there's teacher improvement through those 11 years as well, that the, the teacher themselves are reflecting and getting <laughs> feedback and they're improving as they go. So
2: You'd like to think that, but if, if they're past their third year of teaching, the evidence is that it's very small. Okay, so the work from from Queensland by Andrew Lang, I think. Anyway, the study from Queensland, and we can link to that if you want to afterwards, that shows that the improvement in an average teacher over 20 years in the classroom is less than the difference between a good teacher and an an outstanding teacher and and an average teacher on their very first day. So right now, we aren't very good at making teachers better, and teacher talent, right now is more important than teacher learning that doesn't mean it has to be that way but you know good teachers on their very first day some people are just outstanding natural teachers mm. the bad news is those teachers don't get much better so when you see when you look at the average improvement of teachers almost all the improvement that the average teacher the, the, the teacher averages make is caused by the lowest performing teachers getting quite a lot better quite quickly and with the above average teachers actually making very little improvement and basically,
1: they're coasting. I was going to say, is that an issue of complacency on the teacher's part or is it a yeah. lack of investment on no. the, the, the system's part?
2: I don't think it's a complacency on the teacher's part. I mean, every teacher, if you're, not, if, if you're not naturally good at teaching, then you're forced to get good very quickly to survive in teaching. So every teacher improves. every well. The naturals don't appear to improve that much, but the other teachers, they get better very quickly just to survive. The question is, who improves beyond that point? who improves beyond the point where you've got it under control? And I would say that's where teacher recruitment policies matter because I don't want smart people in teaching. I want the people who are pushing themselves to get better where no one else is pushing them to get better. Those are the ones who actually I want teaching, the ones who are already excellent and still unhappy with how good they are and want to get even better. And that's what, that's the argument that I make in, in the book.
0: The third approach is student feedback, but you talked about that in quite a lot of detail with Craig Barton and in the interest of time and covering other content, I'd like to move on from that, right. but you know, you did talk about Dr. Fox experiment and things like that. It was very interesting. So, we might just jump now into chapter four, which is about okay. formative assessment and I must admit, I... I'd, didn't have a very complete understanding of formative assessment at all. I thought I knew what it was, but until I read this book, I realised it's actually a lot deeper and a lot more multifaceted than than what I had initially thought. So I thought for our listeners perhaps who are maybe in the same mm-hmm. boat that I was prior to the book, it would be helpful for you to give us a bit of an idea of what formative assessment actually is and what some of the misconceptions that people have about it often are.
2: So the fundamental insight here is that good instruction good teaching starts from where the learner is. This is pointed out by David Ausubel 50 years ago. He said, if I had to reduce all of education psychology to just one principle, I would say this. The most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows, ascertain this, and teach accordingly. So the obvious idea is we start from where the kids are. The trouble is, students do not learn what we teach. Even if you're starting a brand new topic that the students haven't encountered at all in their previous studies, within 20 minutes, Different students we at different places. And so the fundamental insight of formative assessment is learners do not learn what we teach, and good teaching starts from where the learners are, so you better find out where they are before you teach them anything else. So that's the kind of fundamental insight. Madeleine Hunter in the 1970s called this frequent checks for understanding. Many people have said, this is just good teaching, and it is. But what I've been trying to do with Paul Black over the last 20 years is to emphasize that this is an assessment process. It's about the role of evidence. What evidence do you have? That's what drives me crazy about formative assessment is people asking kids, are you having a nice time? Everyone okay with that? Yes, no? And of course, self-reports are notoriously unreliable, but anyway, who cares? I need to know what is going on in your head. So by using the term formative assessment, what we are trying to do was to highlight the role of evidence. An assessment is a process of evidentiary reasoning. We give students things to do, we collect the evidence, and we interpret them to make Conclusions, and so the conclusions that teachers draw are fundamentally processes of evidentiary reasoning. And I just wanted to highlight the the power of evidence in that process, and that's why we use the term formative assessment. I've been misquoted, or maybe maybe it's not fair to say it's misquoting; it's probably out of context quoting. People ask me why did I make a mistake in calling this stuff formative assessment, and maybe I did. Maybe I should have called it responsive teaching. But the reason I didn't do that is because the work that Paul Black and I have been doing for the last 25 years has been really influenced by the centrality of the role of the learner. And I think that happened because when we were developing our ideas on formative assessment, this idea of records of achievement, students having producing portfolios of their own scholastic achievements in schools was very powerful in England at the time. And I think we were very heavily influenced by that work about putting the learner at the center of the process. And that's why we've always included the learners in this process of formative assessment. Whereas in, in America, for example, formative assessment is something that's done by teachers to students to check up that they're making the progress they need. In Canada and Australia, assessment for learning was the chosen phrase to distinguish it from assessment of learning. But in Australia and in Canada, assessment for learning, again, focused on the teacher's role. So then they had to invent this new idea of assessment as learning to bring in the student's role which I think is hugely confusing because assessment is not learning. Learning is a change in long-term memory. Assessment is the process of evidentiary reasoning. To say that the two are equivalent is just to muddy the waters to a point where it's just not helpful. So that's why, you know, for all the problems and all the misconceptions that people have, we stuck to this term formative assessment. The clarification I'd give now is that formative and summative are descriptions of the conclusions that people draw on the basis of evidence outcomes. So, there's no such thing as a formative assessment because the same assessment outcomes can be interpreted summatively or formatively. If I give a kid a test of the 100 number bonds, say 20 of them sampled at random, and he gets 10 of them right, I can say, within the bounds of statistical inference, I can say he knows 50% of his number bonds. That's a summative inference. If I notice he's having difficulty with his seven times table, that gives me something to work with as a teacher. That is a formative inference. But the same assessment, And even the same assessment outcomes can either function formatively or summatively. So that's the crucial thing. Formative and summative are descriptions of the conclusions we draw, not of the instruments we use to draw those conclusions.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And and the way you talked about how formative assessment has been taken up, particularly in the States, Canada, and Australia, very much reflects my previous understanding prior to reading the book. And what really came out to me from reading the book are these kind of the role of the peer and the role of the learner informative assessment mm-hmm. so the role of the peer is activating students as learning resources for one another and yeah. for the learner activating students as owners of their own learning so i, w- I was really interested to see them as part of, of your view of, of formative assessment or what formative assessment is
2: yeah and in fact the last strategy activating students as owners of their own learning is in many ways the central strategy because the whole goal of formative assessment is to enable learners to become ones who can give themselves feedback on their own performance. Whenever I work with teachers or leaders, I often ask them, you know, when you observe a teacher teaching, at the end of the lesson, what's the first question the teacher asks you? What do you think they say? When we,
0: When you observe a teacher
2: teaching, at the end of the lesson, what's the first question every teacher asks the person who's observing them?
0: What did you think? How did I go?
2: Yeah, how did I go? And then I ask leaders, what do you say? How do you think you went? Exactly. That's what they say. And I point out, it's not being coy. It's not being clever. You see, if that student, that that, that teacher, can identify all the things that were wrong in that lesson, my work here is done. That person is now a self-regulating learner. They can see what they did wrong. They can actually put their own learning right. And that is such a powerful shift. And so for me, in a way, all the other strategies lead towards that last one of helping learners understand what they need to be doing, what success will look like, what are the steps they can take to get there, what resources in terms of feedback from the teacher or the peer they can utilize to make that improvement. But ultimately, it's about producing self-regulating learners.
1: I'm
0: finding the The part that I struggle with the most is encouraging the expectation that students act upon the feedback that they are given or that the feedback they get Uh, through their own self-assessment. Do you have any strategies or ways to go about getting students to act upon their feedback?
2: Well, this is actually a very sadly neglected aspect of research. So Kluger and Denisi, in their monumental review of feedback in 1996 pointed out that almost all the feedback, the research that had been conducted was a complete waste of time because they hadn't looked at what the learners did with the feedback. And so now there's been a very powerful upsurge of interest in what are called recipients processes. So what can we do to make students receive the feedback more effectively? And so that's why I think Carol Dweck's work on mindset is so important. Because if you have a growth mindset, then you're hungry for feedback because you want to get better, and the feedback can help you sharpen that improvement. If you have a fixed mindset, then you don't want feedback. because if it doesn't tell you that you're as good as you thought you were, it's gonna be rather upsetting. So for me, the work of growth mindset is important for the way it feeds into students becoming hungry for feedback. The problem with the work with the growth mindset is Carol Kwerk has slightly shifted her territory over her, over her 30 years of researching this area. So she used to talk about growth mindset as being a feature of ability. And now she uses the word intelligence. And I think that's unhelpful because. I think ability is a nice word because it shows what you're able to do. So for me, every kid has a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. So I ask 12-year-olds, can you drive a car? Obviously, in the country, they probably can. But in the city, I ask them, (laughs) can you drive a car? They say no. I say, do you think you'll be able to learn to drive a car if you want to? Every 12-year-old I have ever met says yes. Every 12-year-old believes that if they want to, they'll be able to learn to drive a car. So they have a growth mindset for car driving. And the real challenge is to get kids believing believe that mathematics is just the same. So it's about getting students to understand the smart, this is Jeffrey Howard's phrase, smart is not something you just are. Smart is something you can get. And that's why I think that work on, on growth mindset is so powerful. It's about framing the, the, the conversation so the students understand that feedback is not the teacher being nasty to you, it's the teacher having high standards and believing you can reach them.
1: I was just going to add, in a primary school setting, I completely agree. And I've seen the difference between students who understand their own dispositions of learning and how they learn, being able to reflect on their capacity as learners and then putting it into action. And those that don't, and it is incredibly powerful. And so I guess maybe the difference between primary and secondary is that a lot of the work has to be done in these elementary years, perhaps. I'm not sure.
2: Well, I would say, as with all these things, it's never too early and it's never too late. There's often a tendency to say, well, if the primary schools didn't do it right, then we can't do anything because now it's too late. It's never too late. There's some very nice work by David Yeager, former colleague of Carol Dwecks, on middle school kids where they were just told that the reason half of the kids at random were told, I've given you critical feedback because I have high standards and I believe you can reach them. And just that one sentence on the feedback improved the students' grades at the end of the semester. It's incredible how just working on these things that I call, the researchers call recipients processes. Getting students to understand why we're giving this feedback, why we think it's so important, makes a huge difference to the way the students receive and therefore can act on feedback. And I say to teachers, basically, the only thing that matters is what students do with the feedback. If your feedback is getting more of what you want from your students, it's good feedback. If it's getting you less of what you want from your students, if it's making them think they can't succeed and therefore give up, then it's bad feedback. However accurate it is, in terms of the message you're sending about actual current levels of achievement.
0: One of the things that most surprised me about your book was was how confident you seem to be about how formative assessment is, you know, without a doubt, the most reliable approach to improving student learning. I was quite surprised by how, how many times you reiterate it throughout the book. Yeah. So, I just, I need to ask the question, how can you be so sure that it's a more secure approach than alternatives. For example, I mean, in the book you also cited the evidence about the My Teaching Partner uh, approach and, we've you know, evidence has come out recently more about the power of instructional coaching more generally. So why is it that that you're so confident in hanging your hat on formative assessment?
2: Well, for two two reasons. One is the fact that the research in which it's based is so solidly grounded in existing educational research. And secondly, that, you know, whenever a teachers do this, their students learn more. So it's, um, and, and I'm not sure it's the best way. The purpose of leadership and teacher learning is to advise leaders right now, you have to make, you have to make decisions about priorities for your, for your organization. And what I'm saying is right now, the evidence we have suggests that there's nothing you can do that's gonna have a bigger impact at lower cost. Now maybe in 20 years time, maybe in 10 years time, we'll find out that mindfulness or grit or educational neuroscience will produce insights that are even more effective. I, I don't know that this is the best thing. I do know it's the thing where the evidence about a, a its impact, and b, its implementability, is strongest. And that's the, that's the important point. I, I make no claims that this is actually going to be the final word. Researchers always say that more research is needed. Leaders don't have that luxury. Mm. They have to decide priorities for their school right now. What I'm saying is, this is the good. This is a good place to start the conversation. The other point, the other reason I'm so confident is a because we've got very large-scale randomized controlled trials that show this is true, and more importantly, teachers get it. Whenever teachers have their kids tested to form to be put to put data into a spreadsheet, it always sounds like it's the administrators serving their agenda. But every teacher I've ever met gets that it's part of their day job to figure out did your children learn what you just taught them, and so this is this is going with the grain teachers practices it fits nicely into teachers what teachers already do it's not saying you must stop teaching the way you teach now and teach like the hungarians or the finns or the people from shanghai you know it's saying just teach what you what you've always done just work with it and just find out whether your kids learned what you taught them
0: my next question, I was going to cite your quote from January 2017, where you said, I've come to the conclusion that Sweller's cognitive load theory is the single most important thing for teachers to know. And I was also going to yeah. kind of quote you from the Barton podcast, where you talked about, you know, potentially the most, one of the most important things is student-teacher relationships. And, you know, that yeah. students don't care what you know until they know that you care, for example. And I was going to ask you why you don't kind of advocate for for leaders trying to help teachers develop in those areas, but from from your initial response just there to that question, I anticipate that your answer is, we don't know how to help teachers effectively use CLT in the classroom, cognitive load theory, slash develop student-teacher relationships at low cost and reliably. Am I correct?
2: Well, no, no. I mean, I I say right now that the research isn't isn't clear enough. I mean, it's, it's promising. So I think that social and emotional aspects of learning, whenever I talk about these things, I've always put that in the heading of, things that might work. So in the race to the top funding, there were 60 studies on social emotional aspects of learning funded in the United States. Only 10 of them were of high quality and only one of those 10 found a significant impact on student achievement. So right now, it's promising but not proven. Of course, The other thing is there's not much of a knowledge base about how to get teachers to form good relationships with students. I actually happen to think that, that we should be worrying much more about the kind of person we get into teaching, are you a person who sees your students as fully human human beings?
1: <laughs>
2: they may be small. They may not know as much as you do, but they are fully human. And then with all the rights that being a human being confers in our societies. And if, if more teachers started from that position of just saying, you know, I respect you as a human. Mm. Uh, I have things to teach you. I need your cooperation for certain things. Then an awful lot of the issues would just go away. I don't know how, whether we can change that. I did a lot of research in medical education when I was assistant principal of King's, and we discovered that you know, empathy is not something that's easy to change mm. in medical students. So of course I want teachers to care about their children. I mean, I, I, I used to give a lecture to the thousand trainee teachers of the Institute of Education every year, and I would say to them, I know what you're worried about. You're worried about whether your students will respect you. I said, I have a different worry. I worry about whether you will respect your students. And so for me, it's always been that, you know, you know, that it's important, but I don't know enough about how to change it to say this is something that's worth spending a long time on in a research book. And I, get, I think most leaders get that anyway. They don't need to be told that.
0: Understood. Maybe in teacher entrance exams, we need to add the question, you know, I believe that young people are people too, you tick yes or no, and kind of that's a little bit of a herd with slur. <laughs>
2: that's the problem with all these so-called soft skills or new constructs. When I was a, I was a senior research director at Educational Testing Service, I led several teams that were looking at these kinds of things. And the challenge in all of these soft or non-cognitive measures is they can be gained. Totally. Do you like children? Yes or no? Tick, you know, Basically, anybody who's stupid enough to tick no shouldn't be teaching. You know? But it doesn't tell you well, whether they do like children or not.
0: Mm, totally. One of the things I really liked about your book was it, it gave me a f- – few new frameworks to think with that i that I've been I found incredibly helpful since. And one of them that was kind of outlined within the formative assessment chapter was the distinction between quality assurance and quality control. So I was hoping you could right. you could share this and how it relates to formative assessment.
2: well, I mean it's 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 somewhat of an overworked metaphor, but I think the basic idea is, that much of our processes towards educational assessment at the moment function like a quality control regime. We teach kids stuff, and at the very end, we try to figure out, did they learn what we teach them? It's like building a car, like the way the Ford used to build cars. You build a car, and at the end of the production line process, you figure out, does the car work or not? And if it doesn't work, you send it back through the production line process to be fixed. What the Toyota Motor Company started doing in the 1950s, under the guidance of an American, was to say, let's build the quality into the production process. So every worker at Toyota was given not the right, but the duty to stop the production line process if anything was going wrong. And so that idea of building quality into the production process rather than bolting it on at the end, I think is quite a nice metaphor for the difference between testing kids at the end of learning and finding out what they're learning while they're still learning it. So that's that. That's the quality control, quality assurance
0: distinction. Got it. So Toyota was doing responsive manufacturing, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah. Building, building in quality, step by
0: step. Fantastic, and hopefully we'll return to this framework later on. But but for now, mm-hmm. I was just keen to step into a bit of a discussion about. Something that was really only just touched on in the book, but which I I was quite excited about, about, and I've done a lot of exploration about, and that is the Embedding Formative Assessment Professional Development Pack. Right. So, could you tell us, you know, what was the genesis for this pack? You kind of touched on it earlier in the interview. And, And what is in this pack, and how do you hope it's used within schools?
2: So, as I mentioned earlier, when I was at Educational Testing Service, I kind of had this idea of sending a box to a school district that would help them develop their practice of formative assessment. And obviously, things that go in with support and with coaches will be more successful than things that just arrive through the post. But certainly in American school districts, support is often cut when budgets get tight. So to be sustainable, the professional development had to be effective, scalable, and sustainable. Basically, my my idea was if you're not doing these things, then there's just no point in starting. So effective, we know that when teachers work on formative assessment, they get better results. Scalable, we we came up with this idea of teacher learning communities, self-help groups led by teachers working on their own. And so the brief I gave to the the people I was working with was we found a school district in Nebraska called Alice Lake. And I think it has, this, this is like a... This is like a, a local authority and it has 76 kids and six teachers so imagine we're shipping a box to lake alice nebraska to help them develop their practice of formative assessment what would be in the box so that was our design brief and over over a couple of years we developed this practice this this pack called keeping learning on track and it got kind of out of hand it got very unwieldy educational testing service decided they didn't really want to be in the classroom formative assessment game they wanted actually to make tests that was their core competence they couldn't actually sell stuff to districts because they didn't have a sales force their their client had been college board for years so they sold it to a company that tried to make it work and basically couldn't make it work so when Sh- Siobhan Leahy my partner and I returned to England in 2006 we wanted to try to get this happening in our own you know try to see if we could actually work on this and so Siobhan... Started doing it with her own school. She was she'd been ahead in two previous schools, but you know, she got a third a secondary headship. And she started working on these materials, producing these agendas. Teachers heard about it, they said, Can we try them out? They tried it out, so we we sort of developed it, sent, sent them out, got feedback. And then the specialist schools and academies trust got interested, and so they decided to produce it. And I think about a third of all the secondary schools in England acquired these materials. Um, this 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 embedding formative assessment, two-year professional development pack, everything a school needs with no outside help to run a, a two-year professional development program on classroom formative assessment. That's where it came from. You know, What would you put in the box if you were to send it to, remotely to a school? I also discovered that most large organizations aren't interested in this because they don't like making one-off sales. They like continuing relationships where they can keep on billing the client every year. Yeah. So. You know, turning this, this turned out to be quite a hard sell because we just, in, in England, we just get for 300 pounds, say 500 US uh, Australian dollars. This is everything you need for two years professional development for every teacher in the building. So maybe it was too cheap. Maybe we should have raised the price. <laughs> and, but that was the idea. And then the Special Schools and Academies Trust had this idea of getting a randomized controlled trial of this pack, which the Educational Endowment Foundation funded, and it was concluded two months ago, three months ago. And so what we discovered was just shipping this box with minimum support over the last two years of compulsory schooling, 15 and 16 year olds in England, improved the kids' grades on the school leaving examination across eight different subjects to the equivalent of increasing the speed of learning by 25% at a cost of $2 per student per year. 25% more learning for $2 per student per year. Class size reduction costs about $5,000 per student per year and gives you an extra 12% in the rate of learning. So this, we've now shown, is something like 5,000 times more cost-effective than class size reduction. So we're quite excited because you know it's just such low-hanging fruit. The challenge now, of course, is the advocacy, getting people to understand that and maybe even to believe it. You know, some people say, "Well, it can't be that good." Uh, it, it is. It really is. When teachers get time to work on their practice, change their classroom habits, get support of their colleagues,
0: students learn more. That's awesome. And yeah, I I stayed up late last night reading the whole of the EEF report on all right on on implementing the the development plaque. And and I noticed it's something that in the report I'll just I'll just read a, a quick quote. Lead teachers yeah. more commonly felt that the training day had focused too much on the research and theory behind formative assessment rather than the practicalities of implementing the program in schools. School leaders suggested that the training could have included mock tiers blah, blah, blah. So, I, given that, I thought it would be helpful for us today to explore some of the real practicalities of implementing uh, this approach on the ground. So, maybe we can go into that a little bit and then we can kind of reflect upon it okay. through the framework of your book. So, first, first of all, what is, what is in this pack?
2: Okay, so one thing in there is a complete PowerPoint presentation with a transcript so that if they want to, pe- depending on the level of knowledge of their staff, people can make a decision about whether you need a half-day or a whole-day presentation on formative assessment. In some schools, it's necessary. In other schools, it's not. They, they know enough about this. They're just not doing it. Also in the pack are a series of videos. I think it's about 20-something 20, 20 videos you know, in all. Some of videos of classroom practice of teachers doing this. Some are interviews with kids. Some are interviews with teachers. So it's a set of video resources about what this looks like in the school. But I say the active ingredient is agendas and handouts for 18 monthly meetings. So the idea is that once a month, a group of teachers, 10 to 12 teachers, will meet together, and each teacher has to report back on what they promised at the previous meeting and said how it went, and the job of everybody else is to help them, you know, achieve what they said they wanted to achieve. In terms of that specific criticism, I mean... It's difficult to determine from the NIESR report how widespread that kind of perception was. They didn't interview many people, so I just got no idea. And it's down to me because I pretty much decided what to put in that presentation. And I thought that it was really important that the people who were actually involved in this understood the research basis for this. The other reason we didn't go into too many practicalities is because we don't actually care that much about how people implement it we have this model that we call tight but loose. Mm. So we're tight on certain things like monthly meetings. But beyond that, we don't think that it makes much sense for us to be telling people how to do it because they won't do it anyway. You know, I mean, they, 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 you know, schools always adapt. The important thing we thought was important, was crucial for them to understand, was where are the kind of hard barriers? You know, If you do this, it'll almost certainly not work. So that's why that, that presentation may have, come over as being a bit sort of impractical. It was trying to say to people, here are the things that really need to be in place. How you get them in place is pretty much your job as a school leader. And, you know, we, we, we understand that you need to make modifications to
0: make it work in your particular context. That makes a lot of sense. I, I might ask a few more questions. So the yeah, sure the TLC groups, you said about groups of 8 to 14 teachers working together. Mm-hmm. What, what, what makes that number work?
2: The fact that other numbers work didn't work. <laughs> I mean, I think that might be, it might be in chapter six of the book. I can't remember if I put it in there. But what is really interesting about this process was when we started out in this work in two thousand and three, we got just about everything wrong. We started with groups of three and four, and it was just a dire. It's like teaching a you know a, a VCE class of five kids. You know, it's just the teacher's doing all the work. You can't get enough discussion going. Mm. So we tried bigger and bigger groups. We started with meetings every two weeks and found that wasn't enough time for teachers to plan and implement their work. So it really is interesting looking back at where we started from, how we just got about, just about every single decision wrong in terms of where we started from. Mm. And so what we found was that 8 to 14, ideally 10 to 12, was the best number. But it does require strict timekeeping and it does require 75-minute meetings, which is a real problem in England at the time because... Unions had agreed with the government that no administrative meeting could be longer than sixty
0: minutes. Mm. And in so, fact, in fact, that was one of the things in the report. Many of the groups said that they actually cut the meetings short to go from you know yeah. sixty sixty or so minutes. Do you think I mean in the book you talk about lethal mutations. do you think that that was yeah. a lethal mutation of of the approach?
2: Yeah. And so basically, you know, it's down to me, I didn't make it clear to them in the briefing meeting, you know, the one-day meeting, I didn't see to them, you know, 75 minutes really is important, you know. So, for example, in some schools, what they, what they did was they actually traded some teacher time. So even when the unions agreed the 60-minute maximum, heads would say to schools, take an extra 50 minutes on each of these monthly meetings, in return for which you'll get an afternoon off in November for Christmas shopping. Okay. <laughs> so these kinds of trade-offs, but you know, because those things are very very contextual, it depends on the relationship the head has with the teachers and and the union groups in the school. We didn't think that was that was a possible to to mandate. But we, asked, you know, we had this kind of tight but loose framework and monthly meetings, 75 minutes long, was really high up on the list of things that do everything you can to avoid breaching this principle.
0: Okay. And, and just to kind of go through the format of the meetings, if I recall correctly, it was something like there's like an icebreaker or a warm-up warm up activity. The second. The first one is, is is just an
2: introduction to the aims of the meeting, then the icebreaker, and then the active ingredient. Each teacher reporting back about what they promised at the previous meeting and how it went. And teachers have told us time and again, it was the fact that they knew that they'd be reporting back that made them prioritize this. It's, it's the mm. Weight Watchers equivalent of the weigh-in. You know, if yeah. you know it's coming, you better prepare for it. Now, I mean, Etienne Wenger in his book on communities of practice points out that, there, that there's a really important need for a combination of variety of, of novelty and familiarity. So activity four in every meeting is always something new, something they haven't seen before. So if you use the materials that we've prepared in the pack, you can use those agendas. We're drip feeding new ideas. Schools that have taken the pack on but have done it themselves have used videos of classroom practice to discuss, or they do a book study. And I know there's, there's a junior school in England that did Dan Willingham's book, Why Don't Students Like School? One year, and now they're doing Harry Fletcher Wood's book on responsive teaching. It doesn't really matter too much as long as it's, it's related to the principle of formative assessment. In activity five is always 50 minutes of time for teachers to reflect. How will I be a better teacher next month than I was this month? So it's focusing on teachers' growth mindset. You know, how are we better? And the activity six is always, do we achieve our aims? If yes, great. If no, what to do about it? So but that, that agenda took us quite a long time to develop, but we haven't found a better one since then. And we haven't managed to cut it down below 75 minutes. You could actually get it below 75 minutes by making the group smaller, because then activity three, the feedback would take less time. But that robs it of a lot of the kind of energy you get from having a slightly larger group.
0: Mm. I did notice in the report that some schools cut down the time by removing, for example, the icebreaker at the start and things like that, because they they said we see each other every day, we chat anyway, we don't need an icebreaker. What's your what's your view on that?
2: I think I'd like to look at it some more. I mean, you know, the issue is not
0: it's not really an icebreaker.
2: I mean, I think people we may have given unhelpful advice there. I've never intended those things as icebreakers. These people know each other. They meet together every month. The purpose is to get them focused away from what they've been doing. Most of these meetings happen at the end of a long day's teaching. Some schools have had late starts. So they've got them in early. and Also, that's quality time. But most schools, the only way they could schedule these things was at the end of a school day. And we just thought some kind of activity that made teachers kind of depressurize and focus. And so if people said, we don't need this, I'd be interested to see whether the quality of the conversations was as good. Because when we were researching this in the development stages, We found that without that activity, teachers were still kind of depressurizing from the teaching day. And so the activity three, which is the active ingredient, was less effective.
0: Got it. Now, the next question is, what makes a good group? And this was kind of a thing that came out in in the EF report as well. I know that you recommend Mm. cross-curriculum groups because you get that cross-pollination. But then there was a tendency for some schools, especially in the second year of the program, to kind of split off into department Focus groups mm-hmm. was was that a lethal mutation in, in your your view? No, no, no.
2: In fact, the fact, we we explicitly mentioned that. I think it might be in, in the book as well. So we we do recommend cross curricular groups in the first year because then you, it it really focuses the conversation on pedagogy mm. rather than on content knowledge or kids. Yeah, and I think that's really important because that's what the research shows has the biggest impact. Yeah, you know, the research on improving teachers' subject knowledge doesn't seem to have much impact on student achievement. The research on changing their pedagogy does. So we are absolutely clear that the first year, probably better done with cross-curricular groups. In the United States, it also clarifies that this is not about student data as well. Because when the teacher's teaching do not have students in common, you can't talk about student data. So it clarifies that this is a different focus. After that, I think almost all the schools we worked with have in the third year, sometimes in the second year, but by the third year, moved on to some kind of specific focus for the groups. So in some schools, it is subject specific, especially when they're focusing on things like questioning, because what makes a good question in history is different from what makes a good question in mathematics. In some of these schools we've worked with, they've focused on things like formative assessment with special needs, formative assessment with information technology. So they've taken specific focuses for the group. And that's, that's fine with me. That's why our framework of tight but loose is so mm. important, because that's what we're loose about as one of those you know, things. We, we, we try to be as tight. We try to be tight about as few things as possible so that those can be kind of deal breakers. Mm. So then it, there's much more chance of the whole thing being implemented as intended.
0: One of the other components of the program I found quite interesting, it, it drew on Neil Mercer's work and you introduced this idea of the challenger and someone would get a, yes. a challenger card and they were, they were meant to ask you know, yeah, but is that really a formative assessment technique? And, and think questions like yeah. that throughout the meeting. And some schools chose to do away with that after they'd been using it yeah. for a while. Did, did you see that as a lethal mutation?
2: No, no, no. I mean, what we we saw the role of the challenger
0: as being a way
2: of hastening the process of moving teachers away from what I call polite serial turn-taking, where teachers don't feel they can criticize somebody else. They just say, oh, that's nice, next. Mm. So we saw a lot of that to begin with. We thought, how can we cut through that? And Paul Black and I had been looking very carefully at Neil Morris's work in science classrooms and this role of the challenger. And we was really, we were really impressed by mm. the fact that just having somebody whose job it is to say that doesn't follow
0: mm-hmm.
2: in science classrooms with 13. If it works with 13-year-olds, it might just work with the grown-ups too. Yeah. So we thought we'd give it a try. And of course, if, if if you don't feel the role of the challenger is useful, then by all means ditch it. Mm. But I have seen groups who said feel that they don't need it, but the conversations aren't very robust. So for, for us, it was a way of, of accelerating, legitimizing, criticizing another teacher. Okay. Legitimizing, breaking and saying, is that supported? You know, how does that follow from what you just said? You know, so it's, it's just trying to deepen those conversations a bit more quickly than might happen. We we see it happening in three or four years with good with good teacher groups. The work of people like Pam Grossman and Sam Weinberg on learning communities in the US has shown that this happens, you know, over a longer period of time. I'm in a hurry, so I was trying to speed it up.
0: Mm. Got it. The, the the final thing I wanted to ask, and we will touch more on the on the program later through through the lens of the rest of the book. How do you see this fitting into? the rest of a school's kind of development approach or because it's only one meeting a month. So that's obviously not going to take up all their meeting time. And I thought in this context, you might like to refer to kind of that quality assurance, quality control distinction.
2: Well, I mean, I think that depends very much on the context of the country. So in the US, there's this big focus on teacher learning communities, sorry, of professional learning communities who meet together to talk about data. And so in many school districts, they meet weekly. And I'm saying to them, okay, fine. So three times a month, meet in grade-based teams to talk about student data, and once a month, meet in cross-grade teams to talk about pedagogy. So it depends on the country's kind of typical patterns. But it's just 1% of the teacher's contract. You know, we're, we're talking about taking 1% of the time. And, you know, every school will have its own priorities. So this, this, this cannot be the only priority that school leaders are working on. mm mm-hmm. You know, I, and then I, you know, one of our principles in the EFA pack, in the in the TLC model, is that each teacher gets to choose what to work on.
0: In chapter five, you talked about expertise in teaching and elsewhere, yeah. and just linking back to yeah. the kind of EFA professional development pack approach, I was interested because you mentioned the work of Richard Dufour in relation to establishing and sustaining professional learning communities. What do you think are some of the key ingredients that that do four highlights, and that you think are important in terms of establishing and sustaining these communities. And 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 let me also add why the why the communities important at all.
2: Right. So I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a nested set of answers to that question. The first one is students do not learn what we teach, therefore, what we better find out what they did learn. So if you and I, Oli, are both teaching year five students mathematics, and you give your kids a test and they get 75 and I get my kids a test and they get 65%, then I don't think I have anything to learn from you because you're, 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 you're a lenient grader. You set easy tests and I have standards. So that doesn't start the conversation going very well. Mm. But if you and I get together and agree what it is that we want our students to be learning in year five, and we agree this test tests it, and now your kids get 75 and my kids get 65, I have run out of excuses. I'm are ready to listen to you about how it is you're teaching this stuff. So I think the first thing that Rick DeFore identifies is common assessments, and I think that's crucial. The idea that all the teachers teaching kids of a particular year should agree, these are the things we want our kids to achieve. And then we monitor student progress, and then we problem solve around that. And we treat every kid's failure to learn as a, as a group problem, not an individual problem. And I think, I haven't developed this much yet, but, th- but there's, a, there's a really interesting idea that I call distributed expertise. I haven't seen anybody else use this phrase, distributed expertise, but it comes from a study of heart surgeons in Pennsylvania. They looked at heart surgeons, and they were doing coronary bypass operations, and they looked at the death rates. And what they discovered, and this was wasn't very surprising, was that if somebody did one of these procedures a month, the death rate was three percent. If they did twenty a month i.e. one a day, the death rate was only 2%. So the death rate was 50% higher for people who didn't do this procedure very often. And this is kind of part of the expertise argument. But here's what's surprising. If they perform this procedure 20 times a month in different hospitals, the death rates were still 3%. So it wasn't the fact that the surgeon was carrying out a lot of these procedures, it was the fact they were doing so with the same team. That's what reduces the death rate. So this idea of distributed expertise, expertise may not exist in a single person, it may exist in a community of practice. And so I think this is one of the really important ideas behind professional learning communities. None of us is as smart as all of us. And the fact that this kid isn't making progress, we don't treat it as my, he, he's in your class, it's your fault this kid isn't learning mathematics. is not a helpful attitude to take. Mm. The idea is we should actually have, treat every kid's failure to learn as a team problem, as a group problem, and bringing group resources. And I learned that very early on. When I was a second in maths department in, in London, I had a wonderful head of department named Dick Kamutryk. And we used to play these amazing games. Like, if we had a, seven, a year seven kid who was badly behaved, we'd put him in a class of 16-year-olds. Of you know? And if it was, we had a badly behaved 16-year-old, we'd put him in a good class of 11-year-old. You know, we, we just move kids around just because they're all our problems, and we just help each other out by just getting kids to understand, you know, what, take them out of, their, out of their comfort zone, putting them in a context where all the kids around you are working well, it's going to rub up. But, but seeing that as rather than this individualistic culture of if you can't control those kids, it's your fault, instead saying, how can we solve this as a team?
0: So were there any other factors of of establishing and sustaining professional development learning communities that you you wanted to highlight?
2: I think where the professional learning communities literature gets into trouble is they try to claim it as an all-purpose tool for everything. You know, professional learning communities are a good idea, rather than saying there are specific means to a specific end, and sometimes they're the best means to that end, and sometimes they're not. So for me, you know, they're good for some things and not others. And so there's some things where you'd be better off working on your own, to be quite honest. Mm. And there, 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 you know, there's recent research on collaboration that shows that intermittent collaboration can be more effective than c- continuous collaboration. So for me, it's always an empirical question: what environment creates the best learning opportunities for the most people in this in, in, in that particular arena?
0: Got it. Chapter six is about teacher learning, and chapter seven is about implementation. And we're kind of going to. Meld- I'm going to use the word again, Dylan. Oh, did you work? In- <laughs> what, what's your opinion about the word meld now? What did I use it correctly or was it wrong?
2: No, you know, you, look. I, I joked in my email that that I think I, I was losing that battle. The point is, the the fact that, it's, that the, the word came up in the 1930s does not mean it was a good idea. It was wrong. It comes from and melding in German. So it, it, there's there's a card game called Bezique where a meld is when you actually display your your hat your cards. Okay. And so so basically, there was this kind of Synthetic formation melts and well into meld I don't criticize it in other people, but I'm very careful never to use it myself. Okay, <laughs> got it, thanks. In some ways, chapter five is the most controversial chapter in the book because I argue that every single teacher, or just about every teacher in a school, could be as good as the very best with the right professional learning environment. I'm not even sure I believe that myself. That is certainly the conclusion about expertise in other domains, 10 years of deliberate practice, and for it not to be true, It would have to be the case that expertise in all these other areas that have been studied, like scuba diving, table tennis, Mm. acting, chess, are somehow similar to each other and different from teaching. Mm. So so chapter five is in there to help leaders, to try to convince leaders that you you, you have to love the one you're with. You're not going to improve your school by replacement. You're going to improve your school by creating an environment where every single teacher believes they can and need to get better.
0: Okay, that's interesting because I can imagine before you alluded to the fact that you're often criticised for talking about teacher quality rather than teaching quality, and I imagine that's because people don't see that as very growth mindset-y if it's all about the teacher rather than their practices, whereas here you're talking about the emphasis that everyone can indeed improve.
2: Yes, but what I would say is if anybody thinks that by focusing on teacher quality, I am somehow the- into a fixed mindset, it just shows they haven't been listening to what I say. There's nothing in—I mean—a teacher quality can be improved for each individual teacher, but it's just how good they are right now. It's the average of all their teaching quality over all the kids they teach at this moment, or over all, all the lessons? You know, the trouble with teaching quality is—you know—every teacher knows you have great days and you have terrible days, and so the idea of trying to judge a teacher's Quality from a single observation or even twenty observations is just bizarre to me. So, but as I said, you know, chapter five for me is important because it's about creating that belief that every teacher could be as just about every teacher could be almost as good as the very best teachers if we create the right learning environment.
0: I guess I, I guess I'll, I'll open up it up then and say, you know, is there anything in addition that you think school leaders really need to know about teacher expertise and how it's created? In order to do a better job of leading their schools,
2: well, I think my reading of the expertise research suggests that talent matters. It's 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 silly to pretend that there's no such thing as talent. You know, people with higher IQs are better at playing chess for at least the first year, but very quickly what we find is that practice overtakes talent within a, a re- relatively short period of time, and so. Although I think Andres Ericsson overstates his claim and the work of David Hambrick has shown an important counter to this work on, on expertise. I think the basic idea that 10 years of focused improvement can make just about anybody as good as the very best is, is a pretty sound idea. And I think we need to start applying that to teaching. My reading of the expertise research is that I go a long way with people like Andres Ericsson who says that basically expertise is primarily the result of, of practice. I think he goes too far. I think David Hamburg has shown very clearly that talent matters in a whole range of domains, including chess and things that have been studied. But that natural talent will only take you so far, and what makes people really good is working hard. So I think the message to, to principals, to school leaders, is you, know, you need to create an environment in which every single teacher believes they need to improve all the time, even if they're already the best teacher in the school. I don't care how good people are, the important things are getting better. And so the purpose of chapter five is just to give people that research evidence that suggests that practically every teacher could be as good as the very best if they're given enough support and if they want to improve. So for, for me, the, the, the most important application of Carol Dweck's mindset research is not to children, it's to teachers. Mm. If you don't think you could be a better teacher next month than you were this month, I think you should be fired, to be quite honest, because even if you're a good teacher, you'll always be a corrosive influence because teachers fail all the time, because we hope for so much, those teachers with fixed mindsets, they blame the kids.
0: So on this topic of of, of teacher learning, that's kind of the, the title of, of chapter six. And in yeah. chapter six, you, you talk about content then process. So for our listeners, yeah. what do you mean by content then process, Dylan?
2: Well, in a way, it's an antidote to this idea that professional learning communities are a good idea. So what I'm saying is, First, figure out what you want to help teachers develop and then figure out how to help them develop it. So if it turned out from the research that the most important predictor of student learning was teacher content knowledge, then we want to increase teacher content knowledge. And the best way to do that is to send people to a university to be taught this stuff by an expert. So the the content is first start, figure out what you want to help people get better at, then figure out how to do it. As Abraham Maslow once said, he who is good with a hammer tends to think that everything is a nail. So there's people saying, professional learning communities are a good idea. Now, what was the question again? Mm. And what I'm saying is, let's figure out what you want to help teachers improve and then figure out what's the best way to do that. And so for me, given that what we're trying to do improve is classroom practice around formative assessment, then some kind of professional learning community is probably the best way to do that. And specifically, a teacher learning community, a specific kind of professional learning community where full membership is restricted to people who are still teaching is the way to do that. So for me, it's a means to an end, not an end in itself.
0: Okay. Now, a bit more about the about the process now that we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the content already in, in today's discussion. We talk about the five steps of teacher learning, which are choice, flexibility, small steps, accountability and support, and evaluation. And- So I want us to step through these in a little bit of detail, because for me, this is where a lot of the book really came together in a practical way that kind of school leaders can use to evaluate the way that they're currently carrying out professional development and the way that they can improve Mm -hmm. it. So for choice, why is choice important?
2: Well, we've talked about it already to a certain extent. What I'm saying is that in in my experience, working with teachers, music teachers, art teachers, teachers, PE teachers, drama teachers, dance teachers... Whenever there's a whole school of policy about differentiation or something, you know, it, it very rarely applies to teachers of those subjects. And so, for me, working with secondary schools, it seemed to me that you have to give people choice about what to work on. It goes back to Douglas McGregor's Theory X and Theory Y in management in the 1960s. You could either assume that teachers don't know what they're doing and that the job of the leaders is to tell them what to do, Theory X, or you can say, these people are pretty good at what they do. They're the experts about their own classrooms. Let them choose what to work on. Even if that's not always the best thing, the advantage you get by saying to the teacher, you're the professional, you decide what you want to get better at, I think is huge. And so even if it may be suboptimal in terms of the focus of that teacher's improvement, it's going to be way better in terms of implementation because you're saying to that teacher, I don't know what's going to work best for you in your classroom with your kids. I think you do. So my job is to help you get better at the things that you think will do the best for your students.
0: But can't that be a bit dangerous? What What if they pick yes. something? That, so so where do you set the boundaries? That's why the formative
2: assessment provides the
0: framework. Because as long as
2: they're sticking to the agenda of formative assessment, and that's the tight but loose bit, as long as they're sticking to something related to formative assessment, it's highly unlikely they'll do it in an ineffective way. Now, that's, that's probably an overstatement. I've seen plenty of examples of people doing it in a pretty poor way. But you know what? I would even trade that off just to get every single teacher a- a- acknowledging that it's part of their duty to get better. So to be quite honest, I would even let somebody work on learning styles if that was the price I had to pay to get them agreeing that they can get better. Do you really mean that? <laughs> I do. I do. I do. If you've got the 20, 30-year veteran who's seen it all and has resisted all attempts at reform, and I, and I, say, to, and I say to them, what do you want to improve at? and they said, I really want to explore whether this learning style stuff is as bad as people say, you know what? I, I'd, I'd let them do it just, just to get the ball rolling. I will always reserve the right to try to move them onto something a bit more scientifically supported. But to me, the, the, the trade-offs we often have to make are just to say to people, yeah. you know, first of all, let's get that ethos in the school where every single teacher believes they need to get better.
0: I guess the analogy holds for you know, engaging disengaged students, sometimes you have to do something that's completely unrelated to the content yeah. to get any buy-in from them at all, and then you can move into other things.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we don't know that there's no such thing as learning styles. There are some people adopting very hardline positions. They're saying learning styles don't exist. I've never said that. I don't know if they exist or not. What I know is right now, if learning styles has utility in education, it remains to be demonstrated. That was Harold Pashler's conclusion. That's my conclusion too. We may just not have thought about these things in the right way, and a different way of thinking about learning styles might be effective. So, I mean, you know, I'd still say to a teacher, I think that's a mistake. I think the evidence that we have got so far suggests that formative assessment is likely to be a far more powerful focus for your professional development than learning styles. But if that's the only thing you want to look at, go for it.
0: Understood. Now, the next thing is flexibility. And To me, this seems quite similar to choice. Could you let us know what what are the key differences between offering choice and offering flexibility?
2: So the idea of choice is that each teacher gets to choose what to work on in terms of a technique that they've heard other teachers use. The purpose of putting flexibility in there was to reinforce the fact that a technique might need to be adapted in order to make it work more effectively. So the way that teachers adapt these techniques is crucial to make them work. And the other thing, of course, is that the adaptations that teachers make gives you a clear insight into how well they understand the underlying issues. So for example, a teacher who decides to use ice pop sticks with kids' names on to choose kids at random, if that teacher then actually colour codes the sticks and has ten blue sticks for the slow kids, ten red sticks for the medium kids and ten green sticks for the for the top kids, and picks the stick first and then makes up the question. That is a lethal mutation, mm. because the, the other kids are asleep, and more importantly, the teacher dumbs down the question to match their prejudices about that kid's potential. Mm. So, so you know, we see these things all the time, but what we've seen in the teacher learning communities is teachers then look at the modifications that other teachers have made, and they keep them honest by saying, I don't see what's formative about that. So, the, the flexibility is in there to encourage teachers to make these their own. This is not something. This is not a script you have to follow. That's, what, that's why that, that process dimension is there. Is saying we acknowledge the need for you to adapt these things to make them work in your classroom, but we need you to understand the underlying principles so you adapt them in a smart way. Another way I think. Another example of this is a, an English teacher named Charlotte Kerrigan in London, who had been doing comment-only marking for many years, but she still wasn't happy with the amount of attention students were giving to her comments. So she tried a new idea with a class of year 12 kids. She wrote, they done an essay on Shakespeare, and she wrote her comments on strips of paper, and each group of four students got back the four comments and the four essays, and their task was match the comments to the essays. Now, that modification of that fundamental technique of comment-only marking tells me that, that teacher gets it. She really understands what's going on here. So the modifications the teachers make can provide a powerful illumination of how much they're understanding the underlying ideas as well.
0: Makes sense. Again from the EEF report last night on page 34, I was reading it said that many school leads remarked that peer observations had been the hardest part of the project to do. And as we talk about flexibility and kind of of these lethal mutations. To what extent yeah. do you see the peer observations in which teachers go in to observe whether or not teachers are using these formative assessment practices in their classrooms is a key or core part of the, the approach?
2: We don't know. You know, we don't have enough grounded evidence. You know, in, in some schools, they're difficult to organize. In some schools, they're, they're not doing very well. So I, I think that the simple answer is we don't know. What is what, what I think is crucial, this is the tight rather than the loose part, is What's really important is we distinguish these things from performance management. So the important thing is, if you're coming to my classroom, I tell you what to look for. I'm trying to improve my wait time. Here's a stopwatch. Measure my wait times for me. And by the way, any notes you make in my classroom belong to me because you're working for me. Mm. And by making the person being observed the owner of the process, that clearly distinguishes it from creeping performance management. So for us, that was the really important point. The agenda for the observation has to be set by the teacher being observed. It's, it's basically holding up a mirror to your own practice, and I think that we maybe didn't do a good enough job of getting people to understand why that is. And the other thing I would say is, in too many schools, people think that peer observation has to ho- happen for the whole lesson mm. rather than a ten or fifteen-minute segment. And the other thing I say to leaders is, if somebody says they can't get out of their teaching, offer to teach their class for them. Yeah, and because it, it takes away the excuses, and it's a great if you're a principal this is a great way of finding out what that teacher's really
0: doing when you're not around
2: Yeah, (laughs) because the kids are so honest.
0: Yeah. What have you been doing the last week? Just ask a few questions. That's great. That's great. All right. The the next thing is the next of the five steps of teacher learning is small steps. And in this set, you talked a lot about building habits and the importance of building habits. I was wondering to what extent you feel that the importance of building habits is captured within the, the professional development pack that you've developed.
2: It isn't something we emphasize greatly. I think the important insight, and probably didn't really, I've talked about it for many years, but I've become convinced that changing classroom practice is not a process of knowledge acquisition, but of habit change. And so I think just understanding how hard it is to change habits. As soon as, you know, if you don't know how to solve quadratic equations, you can't teach it to other people. And so at that stage in your development, knowledge acquisition is the most effective form of professional development. But if you're not giving kids time to think when you're asking them a question, if you can't give decent wait time, that's not telling people, telling teachers you're not giving enough wait time does not change practice. Mm. It's not knowledge they need, it's support in changing habits. So the important point is, let's think of changing classroom practice, primarily for most experienced teachers at least, as a process of habit change rather than knowledge acquisition, and then accept the fact that this takes time. This takes time to work on one technique. You know, if you've been teaching 20 years, you'll have asked over half a million questions in your classroom. Doing it in a different way is gonna be hard. Mm. So I think one of the things, the reason we put small steps in there is just to make it clear to everybody, leaders included, don't ask teachers to change too many things at the same time. They can't do it. Nobody can do it. Mm. So, So again, it's legitimizing the idea that teachers might work on one technique for six months. That's okay.
0: The fourth step of teacher learning is about accountability and support. And really, this was, for me, one of the most important or interesting parts of the books because you really kind of twisted around this word accountability, which is so commonly used Mm -hmm. in education. So, So what is your vision for the meaning of teacher accountability?
2: Well, I think that people who are employed on public money, public funds, do have a duty of accountability. As Mary Lee Smith points out, it, to require people to be accountable is to assert a political right. I have the right to demand that you give an account of how you spent that money that we gave you for your for your salary or whatever. So I think accountability is really important as an idea. Accountability is not the same as responsibility. So the idea is that you have to give an account of how you spent your time as a teacher, but you, we do not say that you are responsible for the learning outcomes for your students. People will be outraged if doctors were penalized because the patients that they give drugs to do not finish the course of antibiotics. Yet we know that failure to complete courses of antibiotics is a major cause of antibiotic resistance. Just think how much of an outrage it'd be if we said to doctors, you're gonna get, you know, we're, we're gonna sanction you if your patients do not take the drugs that you prescribe for them in the way that you prescribe them. And yet, We think it's okay to sanction teachers when kids don't do homework, Mm. which has a knock on effect in learning. So, to me, the idea is that people shouldn't be responsible for or indeed accountable for things of which they have relatively little little control. So, the question is what, what is a suitable form of accountability for teachers? And it seems to me that being held to account in terms of improvement is a way of giving to the taxpayer some assurance that these teachers are using the money wisely. So, for me, A teacher entirely discharges her duty of accountability by a commitment to improve. And so I was trying to shift the argument away from blaming teachers for kids' test results towards a more intelligent version of accountability that holds teachers accountable for things that they control, whether you get better or not.
0: That's great, and and as part of this discussion, you introduced the idea, or introduced it to me at least, of leading and lagging indicators. So lagging indicators right. was like test results, for example, that you were just referred yeah. to hear. but leading indicators are things to help us check along the way whether we're on track and whether we are improving. So what are some of the key leading indicators that teachers can be using in their classrooms?
2: Well, as, as I said earlier, you know, this, the, the idea here is to help leaders give them the information they need to actually implement this in their own schools. And we've never promised anybody you're going to get improvement in student achievement in a year. It's going to take two years, probably. We have seen some schools get improvements in a year, but typically two years is more likely. And so two years, when you're under pressure to improve school results, when there's somebody breathing down your neck as a school leader, you know, why are the results improving? Two years is a long time. Mm. And so we wanted to give school leaders some indication of how will you know you're on the right track? And that's where we adopted this idea from economics of leading indicators. So the first one, and the, the most trivial one in some ways, but the most important in terms of what doesn't when it doesn't work, is teachers are given time to meet and do so. So in the case study that I present on the on the London borough of Cannington, a pseudonym, you know these school leaders promised that these teachers were going to get given time, and yet only about twenty five percent of the meetings that have been promised were scheduled. And what's incredible to me is that these leaders said this was a priority. They said it was a top priority, but unfortunately they had too many other top priorities to make it a reality. So, you know, just the the starting point is teachers just get time to meet. Just 75 minutes once a month to talk about teaching. Then the idea is that we see critical conversations in, in groups, we see teachers being more robust and being more like critical friends and accepting things that other people say. As leaders walk around and do learning walks or walkthroughs, the prevalence of classroom practice, formative assessment practices is is increasing. Students say that they're more engaged in lessons, so there's lots of student engagement questionnaires you can use. But you can ask very simple ones, like Michael Barber used to use, which is just asking kids how often do you look at the clock in a lesson? And you can just see when this is working well, kids are more engaged. And then the example I gave you earlier of Charlotte Kerrigan's example of Match the comments to the Essays, the modifications that teachers make to the techniques shows you whether their thinking is changing. People have accused me of focusing on techniques, like lollipop sticks or two stars and a wish or whatever. And I've reflected on why I focus so much on these techniques, and this was crystallized for me by a quote from a man called Millard Fuller, who was a founder of Habitat for Humanity. And he said, in matters of environmental awareness, it is generally easier to get people to act their way into a new way of thinking than it is to get them to think their way into a new way of acting. And so that's, I think, crystallizes for me why we focus on these techniques. It gives teachers something concrete to do rather than teach more like the Russians or teach more like the Belgians or whatever, you know. Mm. Basically, do these techniques. But it's not just doing these techniques blindly. I want teachers to act their way into a new way of thinking. But it's grounded in classroom practice. It's it's, it's acknowledging the fact that classrooms are physical spaces. You know, we are embodied human beings. And teaching is a physical act as much as anything else. And so understanding that, I think, is a really important part of thinking about how we support teachers in taking this practice forward.
0: Mm. I was thinking forward to to next year at school and thinking about how I might like to do some experimentation with this kind of Mm -hmm. embedding formative assessment, professional development pack and thinking about leading indicators, I drafted and I sent you a bit of a rubric to kind of work out whether teachers feel that this is stuff we're doing already and to use it various places. Do you think that that's a valid leading indicator or is it kind of a bit misguided? Have you seen what I've written about rubrics in my other books? I have not. Please tell me
2: about it. Then you wouldn't have sent me a rubric.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> rubrics are, I think, a perfectly well-intentioned attempt to communicate to students the learning intentions, and you know, and I've been very big on making sure the students understand the learning intentions, not through necessarily through success criteria, but you know, the kids understand why they're doing what they're doing. What worries me about rubrics is, first of all, why would anyone give students examples of not so good work, or What are descriptions of not so good work as well as good work? And the answer is to give it a number. So I think the whole idea of rubrics is is about grading and rather than actually saying, here's what what we're going for. I think rubrics are very suspicious because there's never a blank cell in a rubric, even though there might not be anything developmentally appropriate. The idea of calibrating rubrics, how do you know that the level of difficulty of what you called excellent in one dimension of the rubric is as hard as the other ones? So there's all those kinds of problems that I deal with. But ultimately, The the thing that convinces me, that that makes me most skeptical about rubrics is the insights of Michael Polanyi and others who say that basically, quality cannot be reduced to words. We can know more than we can tell. And so therefore, if I wanted teachers to understand what good work looks like, I would try to give them examples of quality rather than descriptions of quality for the very simple reason that descriptions of quality do not mean to novices what they mean to experts. Now, that said, rubrics can be an important starting point. For the conversation. But ultimately, rubrics, and as Greg Ashman has pointed this out, you know, rubrics take one or two dimensions of improvement and fetishize those to the to the exclusion of all others. Mm-hmm. When you've got a teacher at a particular place, their work could get better in dozens of different ways. And yet we identify a small number of them for the rubrics. So for all those kinds of reasons, rubrics are very hard to do well. I'm not saying they're I'm not saying they're always terrible. I'm just saying that they're really hard to do well and they may not be helpful. Uh, for novices, examples of quality might be much more helpful than descriptions of quality.
0: So where can listeners slash me go to, to learn more about your opinions on a rubric Dylan?
2: Well, there are two books with unhelpfully similar titles. As an author, you get very little choice about the title of your book. And so I had one called Embedded Formative Assessment, and another one called, with co author with Siobhan he called Embedding Formative Assessments." Assessment. And the, the, the second is probably got more in detail about my criticisms of rubrics than the first, but they both have extensive critiques of why rubrics might not always be the best way to get
0: kids to understand quality. Thanks for that. Okay, so after we've gone through the five steps, it's yeah. really important for us to think how are we going to be evaluating our teachers? And evaluation is something that is mandated at many levels throughout education. Right. I'm keen to explore this more generally, but there was one quote that, that kind of took me in, in your book, and that was, put bluntly, using evaluation frameworks as improvement frameworks makes it more likely that we improve teachers in ways that do not benefit their students. Absolutely right. Can you explain this to us a, a bit more?
2: Let's take the best research framework, which is the Danielson Framework for Teaching. So it turns out that if you're taught by a teacher who scores high on domains one and four planning preparation, and professional practice, you do not learn any more than if you're taught by a teacher who is below basic. So there's four levels in the framework, and if you're taught by a teacher who is distinguished, or a teacher who is below basic, it has no impact on how much you learn. If, on the other hand, you're taught by a teacher who is outstanding on, this, on domains two and three, then you learn about 30% more per year. So the important point is, not every evaluation framework has to be comprehensive. The political processes that lead to the adoption of evaluation frameworks requires that they reflect everything that teachers do. And some of those things help students a lot, and some of them hardly have any impact at all. So if you have an evaluation framework and you apply it comprehensively, you will give teachers incentives to improve on things that have no benefit for students. So for a concrete example, it turns out that in the Denison framework, domains one and four, It's much easier to show improvement in those kinds of aspects of practice, your planning and preparation, and your professional responsibilities, than it is to actually change what you're doing in the classroom. Mm. So you can improve your rating on the Donaldson framework without benefiting students at all. So in those jurisdictions where some kind of evaluation framework has to be used, I'm saying focus it. Focus it on the things that have the biggest impact on student achievement. So, so it, this was put in as a way of helping people who are required to use these rather unhelpful frameworks, to use them in a selective way, where we're saying, I know that the evaluation framework says you're going to have to work on these five different things, but we're going to focus on the one that has the biggest payoff
0: for students. Okay, so you're just talking about essentially separating that professional development and the evaluation and knowing when, when crossover is appropriate and when crossover is inappropriate.
2: Well, I, I think I think it's a bit stronger than that. What I'm saying is that if you have an evaluation framework that, like, let's just take the AISL standards, you know, if we've got an evaluation framework that has 10 things that you look for in teachers, then you could map teachers' progress on every single one of those 10 things. But I would say if six of them have no impact on student achievement, why bother? Why bother measuring teachers' progress on things that don't help students learn more? you just dissipating your energy, and you're sending really weird messages to the teachers like, we want you to get better at things that don't help kids. I mean, if it hasn't become clear by now, my relentless focus over my entire career is, do children learn more when teachers do these things? And if they don't, I'm not interested. So it's it's that relentless focus on improving outcomes for kids that makes me kind of often very critical of what's going on in a lot of policy jurisdictions, because a lot of things won't help kids. We give teachers incentive to do things that don't help kids.
0: It's just perverse. So in terms of when you are, for example, working with the South Australian government and talking about these kinds of things, w- what advice do you give them about how the AITSL standards, the, the, you know, the Australian, I can't even remember what the acronym stands for, but the professional teacher standards here in Australia, how they should be used by school leadership and by governments?
2: Well, oh. I don't think there's anything in the AITSL standards that shouldn't be there. You know, those are all things that I think a sensible set of standards should have. The important point is you as a school leader have to prioritize amongst those standards. And so what we're gonna do is in our school development, we're gonna focus on the, the aspects that will result in the biggest impact in learning for our students in terms of the things that we care about. I'm not saying what kids should be learning. I'm not saying we measure this with VCE scores or NAPLAN scores in Australia or standardized test scores in America. That's the leader's choice. School leaders have to decide what we're trying to achieve as a school. What I'm then saying is, let's focus teachers' work on the things that have the biggest impact on the things we care about.
0: And finally, just an open question. What what do you think is the biggest mistake that school leaders make when they're trying to lead improvements in teacher learning?
2: Not saying no. So there's lots of ideas. Teachers go on courses, they get excited and want to do this. I've just been on a course on on growth mindset or mindfulness or whatever. I want to do some stuff on that. And I say, fine, on your own time. We as a school are going to focus on the things that have the biggest payoff for our kids. And there's lots of things that are promising but not proven. And I think taking that one step further, the biggest problem in education is that just about everything that teachers do is beneficial to kids. Mm. So the idea of cutting waste, which works in the business sector, just doesn't work in education because there's no waste. So the secret of effective leadership, the essence of effective leadership in education is stopping people doing good things to give them time to do even better things. You know, the most important concept in school improvement is opportunity cost. Every time teachers are working on one thing, they're not working on something else. And for me, you know, the fact that teachers are working on something that they want to work on and that may help students learn more is not enough. It has to be the thing that, as far as we know, will have the biggest possible improvement for that investment of time and resources. And as I said, it comes down to stopping people doing good things so they can focus on the even more important things, the even better things. And that's really hard to do because teachers are professionally invested in what they do. I often say to teachers, I think you're spending too much time marking. And they say, are you saying what I'm doing is no good? No, marking is good. But just think that a different use of that hour you just spent marking might have resulted in even more student learning. And that's the challenge. It's moving that onwards. It's, it's embracing this idea of opportunity cost. Every hour that a teacher spends on one thing is an hour they didn't spend on something else. And that something else that might have produced even more student learning.
0: Great advice. All right, we might jump into some closing questions. Dylan, what advice would you give to your first year teacher self? And what advice would you give to your first year research self?
2: My first year teacher, I was, I was just so lucky my first year of teaching. My, my very first year of teaching was in a private school where my biggest class was four kids. So it was just <laughs> kind of ideal. It was a private sixth form kind of college where kids are just retaking exams they would failed at the age of 16. And then I was really lucky to go to a school where individualized learning was just the system you use. So we just, kids did stuff, and if they did well, we did give them harder stuff. So the whole idea of assessment as informing teaching was just something I stumbled into as being the core practice in the building in the school I started at. So I mean, I, I try to summarise these things, but they, you know, it's about relationships, it's about care, caring about kids, it's about not relying on the confident articulate students. I mean, yeah, if I chose one thing that I would be most critical of my 40 years ago self, it was the idea that I'd make decisions about what to do with the whole class based on the responses of a single confident volunteer. And if you think about it, you know, I'm sure if somebody had asked me 40 years ago, is what that one kid said a good guide to what's happening in the heads of the other 29 kids in that classroom, I would have said no. I don't think I was that stupid. Mm. But the point is nobody did ask me that question. And so for many years, I did what other teachers did, which is, and still do, which is to make a decision about the learning needs of a diverse group of 30 students or even more, based on the responses of one or two confident, articulate students. We get... We, We've got to get better evidence about what's happening in our students' heads to make smart decisions about what to do next. That would be the one for the uh, for the teacher self. The researcher self, I don't know, I mean, when I started teaching teachers, when I was first appointed as a lecturer, research was a kind of optional extra. You know, the university I worked in was quite successful, and some some lecturers did research and others didn't. They just taught teachers, and that was okay, you know. So when I started, research wasn't even regarded as an important part of a teacher educator's job. And now I think there was an awful lot right with that, if you like. The the people who trained teachers, they were there to train teachers. And the fact that they couldn't research was perfectly okay because they were bloody good at training teachers. I think the idea that teaching and research have to go together in the university seems to me quite odd. And I think we've lost a lot because most people who are working in teacher training institutions do not research teacher training. They research things that are easy to research, that are less messy. And so for me, it's important that people, that everybody involved in education of any kind is reflecting in a critical way on their practice. And some people want to write about it, and that's okay. And some people want to write about it in scholarly journals, and that's great. But for me, the core competence is getting better at the things that that make you a better practitioner of your craft, and I, you know, that would be very bad advice to a new person today because it's all about publications. So the best advice for my twenty years ago researcher a novice would not be good advice today because it would have been
0: disastrous for my career. Got it. Next question: What does your information diet look like? So. Who are some of the key people in education that you follow on Twitter and really appreciate their contributions and views? And what, what's some of the kind of crucial reading that you think all educators should be doing?
2: Well, I mean, I think the work of cognitive psychologists like Dan Willingham, like Paul Kirshner, like John Sweller, like Bob York, you know, I should have known about their work much earlier. I'm embarrassed that I didn't find out more about them. Um, they, they seem to be very important uh, in terms of design of education systems. I've become really strongly influenced by several economists of education. 20 years ago, economics of education was a kind of backwater, and people who did economics of education were not taken seriously as economists. And then my hunch is that it was the availability of large data sets that allowed economists to test their econometric models that drew a lot of economists to this area. But now there's some superb work being done in the economics of education, there's people like, really, Rick Hanyashek, who did some of the earliest best work on teacher quality in the 1970s. There's some, some several young researchers like Matthew Kraft. There's Susanna Loeb at Stanford, who I, who I think just does absolutely amazing work on education. She's one of the most exciting minds in this area, I think, and I try to read everything that she writes about. Then you've got people like Rebecca Allen in England, you know, applying an economic perspective to educational challenges. So I think... it's it's, it's very common to be sniffy about the economics of education. These people don't know anything about education. That's true. They don't know very much. But they they know about causality. They know about how to collect evidence. And I think better cooperation between education scholars and economists of education, I think, will have a huge impact. I'm very critical of people in the area of neuroscience because I think neuroscience has nothing to, to offer education right now. Maybe not ever, and certainly not for 20 years. So I tell teachers, if you see anybody showing you a picture of a brain with certain regions colored in, run away. (laughs) There's nothing good going to come out of this because all educational neuroscience does is provide plausible explanatory mechanisms for things we already knew from cognitive science. So that's an important distinction. I don't care what a neuroscientist says until a cognitive scientist tells me it works in the classroom, then be very skeptical. I think the the thing I've really learned is try to listen as much as you can, to people you profoundly disagree with. I don't know anybody in education who doesn't actually have children's interests at heart. And if they say things that you think are really stupid, think again. There's a wonderful quote from Abraham Lincoln who spies a man across the room and he says, I don't like that man very much. I must get to know him better. I think that's, that to me is, is, is really sound advice. You know? But we need to find out. Most human beings are pretty well disposed. They're trying to do the best they can. If they see the world differently from you, find out how. They've, they've come to those views. Find out how they've reached those conclusions. And my favorite test of this as a researcher is from a man called Ian Ayers, who asks, he asks any researcher he comes across, give me two results that you believe and trust but do not like. And if you can't name at least two research results that you trust and believe but wish were not true, then you're not a very good researcher. You're just just confirming your prejudices. And in case you ask, my two are the importance of IQ for educational achievement, Mm. and even more depressingly, it's heritability. And the second is cognitive load theory. I wish that problem solving was the best way to teach problem solving. I really do not least because I used to spend years teaching kids problem solving by getting them to solve problems. And it was a really hard, I mean, I resisted cognitive load theory for so many years because I didn't want to find out that what I'd been doing had made the achievement gap in my classroom bigger. But I have to admit, now looking back, it probably did. Because I was actually teaching kids problem solving by getting them to solve problems, which worked fine for the expert kids, but less well for the novices.
0: And then there's also Brian Kaplan's book.
2: Yes. Yeah, and, and I think that, that that in a way it's a much more parochial book because I think his, what he's proving is very true of the United States education system. But I don't think it's as true of what I call the more continental model of higher education. Uh, he's critical of high schools to the extent that they don't teach valuable skills. But, you know, I think his arguments are much less powerful there. But, yeah, I, 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 I'm, op- I'm open-minded about Australia, England, Scotland, France, Germany. And there's also, there's a, there's a strange thing that I, that I had, had this discussion with Brian Kaplan. It could be that the things we teach kids that they forget and therefore they can't remember. You know, there's the joke about the five-minute university, you know, basically, you know, I can teach you in five minutes everything the average undergraduate remembers five years after graduation. But it could be that they they actually relearn it more quickly the next time around. This is Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve. So it could be that what we have in our education system is a whole lot of potential to learn to relearn stuff that you actually have learned and forgotten more quickly because of your previous educational experiences. So even there, there might be a kind of silver lining in the rather impressive case that Kaplan makes that education is largely signaling and basically an arms race that makes students poorer for no good. For no good reason.
0: Where's your next for Dylan William? What are you currently excited about? Advocacy. I mean, basically,
2: you know, the evidence about the power of formative assessment, especially this most recent randomized controlled trial from the Education Endowment Foundation, just convinces me that we're on the right track. And the scalability of the teacher learning communities model, the fact that this was implemented at very, very low cost within existing resources and had such a profound impact on student achievement across you know, eight different school-leaving subjects, examinations. That makes me very positive. I may never do any more research ever again. For me, now it's about getting people, it's about advocacy, getting people to understand what I mean by formative assessment, how we can transform our classrooms, and supporting teachers. Some people re- describe it as retired, because I actually retired from university life eight years ago. But I'm never retiring. I mean, I'm, Paul Black and I are still working together. He's 25 years older than me. And he's still working, so I hope that my most productive years are ahead of me. I, I, I want to write a book about grading. I want to get think about how we can support greater popular engagement in education at an informed level. So creating the schools our children need. The most recent book is a start in that direction. But I think becoming more of a public intellectual about these things and trying to inform the public debate, so that we don't make so many quite so, quite so many stupid decisions, and just carrying on trying to
0: improve what happens in schools for kids and for teachers. So any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to do? I just think it comes back to this fundamental thing that, you know, when we as teachers do our
2: jobs better, our kids live longer, are healthier and contribute more to society. You know, if if there was a drug that did what education does, nobody would believe it. It reduces teenage pregnancy. It improves health. It reduces mortality. It makes people more pro social, makes people more tolerant. I mean, it's just incredible. The list goes on and on and on. And it's just basically just harnessing that power and just, you know, and making it work for more people, not just the people who've always found it easy, but understanding that, you know, every time a kid doesn't get to a point through their education that they can't contribute meaningfully to society, we treat as a failure. We no longer accept the bell curve. The bell curve of results in NAPLAN or VCE or any other test is what nature gives us. It's what you get when you treat every single kid the same. Our job as teachers is to destroy the bell curve, to give every child a chance at a fulfilled, meaningful, purposeful life. And so that for me is, is the real challenge, creating a society that actually gives every kid that chance. And if you know, we may not always succeed. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal. But we no longer accept that as being part of the natural order of things. We say we failed. We've got to do better. We can no longer accept the bell curve. We can do better.
0: Dylan William, thank you for so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute mammoth interview. You've been very generous with your time. You know, we've talked about so many things from, from learning from research and about meta-analyses through teacher quality and the distinction between teacher quality versus teaching quality. We moved into formative assessment, had a deep dive into that, and I was particularly interested by the quality assurance versus a quality control distinction. We talked about teacher expertise, and about the importance of the belief that all teachers can improve. And then we moved into really the the content and process and the five steps of teacher learning and right through to to evaluation and, and the kind of key distinctions we need to make within that. So thank you so much for your time. It's been incredibly edifying and we look forward to following your work in future. Thank you, it's been fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EPR podcast with Dylan William. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. I'll also note that if you'd like to listen to more wisdom from Dylan William, he was interviewed twice on the Mr. Barton Mass podcast, the first with a focus upon formative assessment and the second with a focus upon his book, Creating the Schools Our Children Need. I'll put links to both of these episodes in the show notes. They're well worth a listen. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you've really been enjoying the e then as previously mentioned, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. Any donation, no matter how large or small, will help me to cover room hire, sound engineering, and other costs associated with the program. Check out patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to explore the possibility of supporting the show. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you, or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on the podcast, or of any other ERRR episode, then please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. I've actually had a whole heap of emails and messages from people over the past few months about the show, including many suggestions for future guests, so thanks to all of you for that. But I also wanted to just give a special shout out to John Lewis and the rest of the Redcliffs teaching team. They're a teaching team in rural Australia, who emailed me this week to let me know that they're getting together as a group on the first Friday of every month to discuss the most recent ERRR episode and how it's been influencing their classroom practice. It's wonderful to hear stories like this from teachers who are really finding value in the podcast. So thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.